Today, May 40 here, and so the firing of Tucker Carlson by Fox News over 10 days ago, it may well have just come down to power, right? So Fox News was threatened when Donald Trump had greater loyalty from their audience than it did, and so Fox News did everything it could in the summer of 2015 to try to derail Donald Trump's presidential chances. And then when they finally came to peace with the reality that Trump was more popular with their audience than they were, right? Then they, they got on board the Trump train reluctantly, but full bore. Then after Trump lost, right, Fox News desperately wanted Donald Trump to go away. Why? In large part because Donald Trump remained more popular with Fox News audience than Fox was. I mean, Fox was the first... TV network to call the 2018 election for the Democrats taking back control of the House of Representatives, the first uh, network to break the news about Ukraine, that uh, not Ukraine, <laughs> Arizona, that Arizona was uh, going to go for Joe Biden. And so for about uh, six months from September of last year until March of this year, Trump wasn't interviewed on Fox News. They did absolutely everything that they could to try to make the case for Ron DeSantis, and it just hasn't worked out for them. And now, firing a Tucker Carlson, it may well come down to Tucker had a stronger connection to Fox News than did Fox News. The campaign to ruin Tucker Carlson continues. It wasn't enough to fire the guy without telling him or his audience why. Bit by bit, we get these ridiculous leaks it's my opinion, they're very clearly from Fox, to places like Media Matters, this far-left smear machine whose mission it is to ruin Fox News, and now other conservative outlets. Uh, the latest was probably the funniest yet. This is what they think is going to make Tucker's audience, question mark, turn on him. Uh, watch this one. Can I ask you a question? You don't have to answer, it's personal. I'm not speaking of you, but more in general with ladies. When they go to the ladies' room and powder their noses, is there actually nose pattern going on? Sometimes. Ooh. I like the sound of that. Most of the time. Do pillow fights ever break up? You don't have to. Not, don't in, have to, not no. in the back. Okay, not in the back. <laughs> That'd be more a dorm activity. Okay. I'm sorry. So you are such a good sport, such a good person. Thank you. I know you do, but you do not deserve that, and I mean that with great affection. I got you, man. Yes, ma'am. Sorry. Let me tune in. And there you see his true misogyny come out against yeah, the makeup artist. Yeah. Yeah, I, was, I, I, was, I was done with Tucker after he described a woman as allegedly yummy. But the fact that he wants to know that when you go to powder your nose, whether there's nose powdering going on, that's that's just the end of it. I can well God. see why Rupert Murdoch, who is renowned around the planet as a gentleman of probity and character and discretion, <laughs> uh, saying we can't have this guy around us uh, any longer. Uh, this is just disgraceful. Correct. Um, now that my audience is calling this is calling Fox News Fox Wiser because yeah. of their betrayal <laughs> and the fallout in the numbers after right. the betrayal. It continued. Mm -hmm. So what the hell is going on with Fox News? Hey, good afternoon, Neil. And you can hear a loud bus passing behind me. They're transporting migrants out. And we have seen more than 2,000 migrants every single day I've been here, Neil, exactly at Ground Zero in Brownsville, Texas. Let me take you up to our Sky Drone and show you Camp Monument as we have been covering it here. You can see the buses coming and the migrants lining up upon the levee. And we had Secretary, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, along with the Border Patrol Chief here, 
just visiting to see these operations yeah. ahead of Title 42. But here's the thing, when we talk about a calm and preparation before the storm, the storm is already coming here. We have had more than 8,000 migrants every single day, border-wide across the U.S., and that is really the situation we were in last year when we were breaking records. I want to show you, Neil, some exclusive footage we shot with our Fox flight team early this morning before the sun was up. You can see the thermal imaging on the bottom there is the U.S. The groups of migrants highlighted with the heat signatures on the other side, Matamoros. They're coming in large groups of two or 300 all day, every day, 24-7. And this is even with Title 42 in place. Now, as I mentioned, we had Secretary Mayorkas here with Chief Ortiz, and he doubled down Mayorkas saying that once Title 42 lifts under this Title 8, which is the mechanism, they're going to expel people who do not qualify for relief under asylum, saying that the consequences were going to be, quote, more severe than anything we've seen before. So we'll find out with time whether or not the words match the actions. Meanwhile, we got an exclusive interview, Neil, with Chief Ortiz, and I asked him a little bit about what we can expect to see next Thursday when Title 42 lifts. Take a listen. I fully expect us to see come May 11th, nine or 10,000 apprehensions a day. That's not something that we're not prepared for. Um, if you get upwards of that, it really starts to stress the resources that we have available to us. But I do, I am confident that the men and women out here are doing everything they can to prepare for those uh, increase in uh, traffic. And the men and women in gray in the Border Patrol. Okay, so Coach Redpill Gonzalo Lira apparently arrested in Ukraine. So Daily Beast has a long article on it. So pro-Russia blogger Gonzalo Lira detained in Kharkiv. So apparently he's a citizen of a Latin American country. He's lived in Kharkiv for several years. He's accused of supporting Russian occupation and valorizing Moscow's apparent war crimes during the war said to have engaged in attempts to discredit Ukraine's highest military and political leadership. In spring of 2022, he filmed provocative videos showing the faces of Ukrainian soldiers and insulting the country's defenders. He posted the videos on YouTube and Twitter. So he's accused of denying the facts of Russian missile strikes on Ukrainian cities and the mass killing of civilians by the invading forces. So why on earth would anyone remain in Ukraine if you're simply mocking Ukraine's war efforts that that uh, seems really ill-advised on wednesday night where uh fox went down from the 7 p.m in the demo this is the number they really care about yeah. down to um from the 7 to the 8 from 170 to 155 the slide continued last mm. night or wednesday night at the 9 p.m to 148 these are terrible terrible numbers no, for the no, fox news no. demo 10 p.m 122 no. uh and in that hour msnbc beat fox in the demo they are now doing the equivalent of what Bud Light did when they released yeah. the Clydesdale ad with the country guys on the porch and trying yeah. to bring in the blonde conservative to save them at 8 p.m. They're going to have Kaylee McEnany sub-host the 8 p.m. next week. Mm. I'm telling you, this is the Clydesdale moment. Let's go back to what we think they love. This is going to yeah. save it uh, as Fox no. Weiser continues to struggle to get itself out of its basement toilet ratings. No, they're absolutely extraordinary. As, as I mentioned earlier, I used to uh, guest host for Tucker a lot, and I'm just some, like, dilettante Canadian coming down from the hills uh, to Manhattan. But I would have been... I, wouldn't have, I would have been too ashamed to go into the building the next day with these right. kinds of numbers. The one that got me, I think, was... Uh, I think it was one day last week. But, uh, you know, when you're doing... You know this, Megan. You're thinking, have we got a strong lineup tonight? Am I going to beat uh, Rachel Maddow? And uh, ooh, even better, if I beat Hannity, that'll, you know, be good. I'll, have, I'll enjoy doing that. The one guy we never had to worry about was, I can't even remember his name, the 8 o'clock guy on MSNBC. Chris, he, 
Okay, let's uh, get the Daily Beast article here on Gonzalo. When someone Lira's... says, get back to normal, hey, what no, are they even no, talking stop, about? Stop. Pre-pandemic? Pre-Trump? Pre-internet? Oh, man. <sighs> okay, I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Andy Levy. Okay, so there's a stunning, stunning video of Gonzalo Lira's arrest. And once I can get past this 30-second uh, ad, I can play for you the Daily Beast report and show you video of his filthy apartment. Okay, here we go. Red pill, dating coach Gonzalo Lira, accused of shilling for Putin, is arrested in Ukraine. By Julia Davis. Date from hell. Gonzalo Lira, a prolific online personality who became an outspoken supporter of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, had his home in Kharkiv raided by the security services. Ukraine's security service, SBU, has arrested Gonzalo Lira, a dual citizen of the United States and Chile, who has been living in Kharkiv, on charges of producing pro-Russian propaganda. Lira, a prolific and controversial online personality, is accused of creating and disseminating materials that justify Putin's armed aggression against Ukraine. He is facing the possibility of being imprisoned for five to eight years. Lira, a former online dating coach, was arrested on May 1 at his residence in Kharkiv, according to two sources familiar with the investigation. Ukrainian authorities claim that the search of his home revealed additional evidence of his unlawful activities, including data found on his cell phone and his computer. The SBU announced on Friday that an unnamed foreign blogger had been arrested and the Kharkiv prosecutor's office posted a blurred video of Lira on its YouTube channel. The Daily Beast has obtained a longer version of the footage, which shows the arrest and raid on his home. Lira was charged under Article 436-2 of Ukraine's Criminal Code, Parts 2 and 3, pertaining to wartime propaganda. He will remain in jail as the case moves forward and an active investigation is still underway. An SBU spokesperson said that after the start of the full-scale invasion, the blogger was one of the first to support the Russian invaders and glorify their war crimes. Additionally, in his comments he disputed the details of Russian missile attacks on Ukrainian cities and mass murders of civilians. Lira as a blogger, who made a transition from offering sleazy, dating coach, advice to men as, coach Red Pill, to providing propaganda fodder for the Russian state media that eagerly picked up and disseminated his multiple dispatches from Ukraine. In his videos, Lira insulted the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, and described Ukrainians defending their land from Russian invaders as armed criminals. Ukrainian authorities allege that Lira filmed Ukrainian soldiers, making a specific effort to capture their likeness and attempting to discredit their military service. Lira also charted his efforts to follow American reporters covering the conflict in Ukraine, describing them as system pig journalists, and revealing their whereabouts in specific hotels. Lira commented, they're here to report how they led Ukraine up the garden path and now Ukraine is effed. These are the people pushing the narrative, so you can see them. See them real good. American journalist Sarah Ashton Cirillo, who is currently serving in Ukraine's armed forces, said she is slated to be one of the witnesses in the criminal case against Lira. She told the Daily Beast, this justice has been a long time coming. Obviously, when I was accused by Maria Zaharova and the Russian MFA of being complicit in Gonzalo Lira's disappearance last year, it set off a lynch mob of his supporters accusing me of murder. His arrest this week shows that Ukrainian officials don't bow to popular pressure when a factual investigation leads to the truth. Ashton Cirillo added, 
I've already given my sworn statement to SBU about Gonzalo Lira several months ago and expect to be called as a witness in his prosecution. Lira blamed Ukraine for being attacked by Russia, describing the ongoing war as one of the most brilliant invasions in military history. He defended Putin's motives, claiming that the Russians were taking special pains to avoid damaging civilian infrastructure or harming civilians and predicting that Ukraine would flourish under Russia's control. He disseminated a number of debunked conspiracy theories, including Russian allegations of locating American bioweapons labs in Ukraine. Sources involved in the investigation say that Lira's appearance on the Donbass Devushka's show prompted additional scrutiny of Lira's activities, which were being monitored after his questioning and release last year. The online personality posted a slew of videos and commentary on YouTube, Telegram and Twitter, attempting to pin the blame on Ukraine for the strikes conducted by the Russian Federation. Russian state TV touted his video blogs as valuable reporting by an unbiased observer, featuring them on various shows and praising his efforts. Lira's YouTube and Telegram following exceeded a combined 300,000 subscribers. Action. Let's get some uh, action video here from the Daily Beast site. Oh, no. 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 Dolphics? Man. So there are only some articles that I can access if I turn off my ad block. Uh, on that particular browser. He okay. is, for all intents and purposes, what you would call an ethnic nationalist, but he is not an imperialist, the Kiev regime. I'm, I'm telling you right now. Uh, it, these people are neo-fascist, neo-Nazis. The West is the one puppeteering Zelensky, right? The Kiev regime also constantly shelling the regions of the Donbass. 16,000 people died after 2015, up until the start of this conflict. You know, 1,000 children or 800. Why would you live in Ukraine and mock Ukraine's war effort? 100 children were killed. All right, it just doesn't make any sense that you would you would stay there, mock their their war effort and well, why what was he doing in Ukraine? It was cheap. It was very cheap to live. I think that's what he was doing. So just like some people live in Bakersfield and some people live in Sacramento. People, some people need to keep their expenses down if they're going to be an e-personality. Okay, Gonzalo Lira. He's... Vladimir Putin... He is, for all intents and purposes, what you would call wait, an ethnic nationalist. But he's not an imperialist. There's nothing like the, the feeling of done. I'm, I'm telling you right stop. now. Uh, Try these it. people are Introducing front door. Download the video chat and expert. Wait, stop. Vladimir Putin also comes to for all intents and purposes what you would call an ethnic nationalist. But he's not an imperialist. Oh, stop it. Stop it. Sorry, I really let you down with the, with the old ad block. Hey, 
I'll take your word for it, because I never even bothered finding out his name, because we always knew that no matter how bad a night you have, you always beat that guy, because yeah. he's such a total loser. And I couldn't get over the way one night last week, whoever was doing the airport slot lost to Chris Hayes. Uh, and it's and it's not difficult to figure out uh, why. You know, you're absolutely right. That, that when you get rid of a fellow, you want to not just let him go, but to damage him sufficiently so he has no value to anyone who might be minded to hire him after you. And I've been through that on a much smaller scale than Tucker. But every aspect of that, what's going on with Tucker, is familiar to me. For example, this woman who supposedly worked on the show and has uh, admitted that she never actually met Tucker, but she's being right. interviewed by people as the person who will lift the lid on the real Tucker Carlson. I had that. Uh, some guy uh, he uh, who again I'd never met, I'd never emailed with him, I'd never texted with, with him, I'd no he had I'd no connection with him, and suddenly he's giving interviews, lifting the lid on the real Mark Stein, uh, and this is just like a standard operating procedure. Tucker, uh, by the way, Tucker's uh, done his show from the Mark Stein studio right here. So there are guys in the room right now, there's a cameraman, makeup lady, who've actually had far more contact with Tucker Carlson than these people <laughs> saying, oh, I'm I, uh, the real Tucker Carlson, it isn't pretty, I'm going to give you the inside scoop, by which they mean that while he's sitting here between breaks, we keep the tape running and then leak it to Media Matters and the New York Times. It's, it's not one of these is even remotely offensive. So here's what's happened now. I mean, I've been on the air. My audience will vouch for me for almost 10 days now, calling yep. out who I believe is doing all of this. And that's the head of comms at right. Fox News, Irina Briganti. Mm. This is her bread and butter business. She's done it to many of us in the past. Mm. If I'm wrong, Irina, go ahead. Why don't you state it on the record? Come on and we'll debate it, right? If I'm yep. so wrong, let me, let's, let me see your phone records. Let's mm. talk about it under oath. I would love mm. nothing more. Um, now, because they're getting more heat for what they're clearly trying to do to Tucker, mm. they write this ridiculous letter through their lawyers, Wilson Sonsini, to Media Matters, Angelo Caruso. <laughs> and they write as follows. We write on behalf of Fox Corporation, this is the lawyers, to clarify any misunderstandings Media Matters may have regarding previously unaired footage that Media Matters has published in a series of articles, headline Fox Leaks. The unaired footage is Fox's confidential intellectual property. <laughs> Fox did not consent to its distribution or publication. By the way, in the original draft, according mm -hmm. to Angelo, the first draft of this that he received from the lawyers read, Fox did consent to its distribution <laughs> or publication. Yep. Then an hour later, they had to correct their Freudian slip mm -hmm. and put back in the word not. Mm -hmm. And Fox does not consent to its further distribution or publication. This proprietary material was given to you without Fox's authorization. Who who is Fox, may I ask, lawyers at Wilson Sonsini, because I have a very good idea that your executive pre vice president in communications 100% yeah. yeah. consented by sending it over the transom to the good yeah. people at the New York Times and then later. Okay, so commentary that uh, Megyn Kelly is top-notch shoulders. So notice how that they're kind of releasing to the sides. Not a lot of unnecessary tension and compression here. Look at this nice long neck. So Mark Stein, by contrast, has pretty much lost his neck. But uh, Megyn Kelly's got her head releasing forward and up. Nice long neck so that she has much more freedom of movement. There are more joints in the neck than anywhere else in the body. So free neck, right? It's essential for a free you. Free your neck. Free your mind. Cross the bridge to total freedom. To quote the Scientologists. For the media matters, people. Yeah, because this is, again, standard operating procedure. As, as you know, there's a one-hour show, but in the course of that show, there's five breaks uh, in which the host is just sitting there uh, and he has a, a bit of his makeup retouched or he texts his producer with everything. The only source of all this material is from Fox News. And you have, as you say, in Irina Briganti, a figure who is notorious uh, for just combing through all that Fox intellectual property, as they put it, until she can find the five or six things that are damaging. Now, in this case, they aren't in the least bit damaging. They're, they're, uh, they make Tucker seem rather endearing. He's like uh, joshing with his makeup artiste uh, uh, about nose powdering or whatever. If that's the best they can do. this is uh, Somebody did this to me in a court case a couple of years ago, and they released all these things you say during the breaks and while you're waiting to start and everything. And it was one of the lamest things I ever... You, you know, I've ever seen because I don't do a lot of the Tucker's very garrulous and he's he's talking and he's texting, not he's texting 24 hours a day. Uh, the one for me was totally lame. I didn't actually do any bleeping words as you occasionally uh, do, Megan. The closest <laughs> I got was I went, I was so annoyed. I went. 
uh, without actually reaching the vowel sound. And that's all they had. And it, and it was entered as a piece of evidence in a court case against me. We thought it was so lame that we actually put it up at my website. It's still it's still up there. And I thought that was the lamest, you know, behind the scenes thing you could ever come up with. Because the gold standard, as you know, is that Bill O'Reilly moment. Uh, oh, amazing. But, the, uh, but, but, but We'll do it live. But, yeah, that's fantastic. We all wish we could live up to that. And I thought this was so totally lame. We posted it at the website. I've never seen anything lamer until these bits of Tucker, uh, you know, talking about finding a lady yummy and wondering about nose powdering. If that's the it's... best they've got. He was in Oxford uh, last night uh, doing some charity event or something. And the, the interesting question, the, the problem that, you know, uh, Rupert uh, Murdoch has is that they've given no explanation as to why they dumped Tucker Carlson. They didn't dump him for lousy ratings because his ratings were better than anybody else. Uh, they, so they, they have not yet, exp they're, they're like, uh, they're in a worse position than Transhauser, Bush or whatever they're called, in that they haven't actually come up with any credible explanation as to why they took away the audience's favorite host. And Kayleigh McEnany and whoever else they get uh, have got an impossible situation until they actually come up with a rationale for what they did. Experts say that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over two had my team just pull because I, I don't usually check the mainstream media for stories about Tucker. I'm <laughs> like, I know what I'm going to get, but man, I, I wasn't surprised to see the headlines. Here's a few as a result of what I believe Fox is doing to the guy. Um, MSNBC, newly revealed text reflected Tucker Carlson's racism bloodlust. New York Times opinion piece by Charles Blow, Tucker Carlson, white men and the lynch mob mentality. Another from MSNBC, Tucker Carlson, racist and wrong, racist text, same from USA Today, Forbes, The Hill, Washington Post, Vanity Fair, Chicago Tribune, The Guardian, Variety, Slate, The Hollywood Reporter, Business Insider, Newsweek. I could keep going. So what I have said before is what I believe, a campaign orchestrated from within, most likely by Arena Briganti, who hated Tucker, um, is working with the mainstream to just demonize him even further as a racist lunatic who needed to go. This is all nonsense. We don't know the real reason he was canned, but the audience gets it. They, they may be able to convince USA Today, but they're not convincing Tucker's core audience, and I'll, and I'll show you how I know that. We averaged the seven days that Tucker's been gone from Fox News and compared it with just the last week he was in the seat at 8 p.m. His overall number, that's everybody who's watching, is down almost 50%. It's down 47% without him. The key advertising demo, which is the number they care about, 25 to 54-year-olds, is down 59% at 8 p.m. 59%. They've lost almost two-thirds of the audience that helps pay their bills. They're left with about a third of their audience. I mean, that's stunning. And I look up and down the board at the rest of the primetime, which with all the respect of the daytime is all anyone gives a shit about over there at Fox News. The primetime pays the bills, period. They're all down. Um, just did a, qu a quick calculation, the 9 p.m. demo, which of course is handy, he follows Tucker, is down almost 40%, down 39%. And I haven't done the percentage calculations here. Oh, hold on, Steve, my, my crack EP has done some calculations. I made him do math. Um, then the 9 p.m. is down in, so in the demo, down 39%, overall down 23%. The 10 p.m. down 24% in the demo, down almost 20% in the total. Um, and I could go on. The 11 got the 11 o'clock got hurt too. Greg Gutfeld, he was averaging um, 17.45 a night in the overall. Now he's down to 15.86. He was averaging 2.58 in the demo. Now he's down to 2.07. And that's the least hurt hour. All the others are down double digits. They have lost repeatedly to MSNBC. They even have lost to CNN, which has no one watching it. And here's what's happening. I'll tell you right now for sure. Inside Fox News, panic is setting in. If they lose a month to MSNBC, it will be a catastrophic moment for them. It'll be, I mean, if I were a Fox hater who was mad about what they did to Tucker, I would intentionally turn on MSNBC at night, especially if I had a Nielsen box, just to show, just so that MSNBC can beat them for this month, because that's what they really care about. Trust me. I was there one year when Nancy Grace almost beat Bill O'Reilly at the 8 p.m. because it was Natalie Holloway time and she was crushing the numbers and Bill was the number one show. You would not believe the panic that they were on. They did everything within their power to code out the nights that would be, that he, they knew he'd lose as like a special. So it wouldn't count against the ratings. I could go through all the tricks, but they are, trust me, in a panic right now about the fact that the prime time has collapsed and actually could lose an entire month, perhaps more to MSNBC. So what do you guys make of this whole bust up?
Well, I think to me, what the most interesting thing to follow is I want to see what happens next when it comes to Tucker. Like Duncan was just saying, some company offered him what, $100 million? Yeah. On this program. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's amazing. Patrick, I, think, David. I think he has an incredible audience. He's been an incredible voice. And I mean, he could do basically anything at this point. I mean, I remember in, in the hours after uh, he, he was out of Fox, people were asking, are you going to run for president? I, I mean, mm-hmm. it's incredible. The audience he has built in, the sport he has built in, I have no idea what he could do next because it could be anything. There's also a stickiness he's built with his audience, I think, over time. And that's because I think his show was just fundamentally different than a lot of mm-hmm. other cable news programming. You felt like there was this overarching narrative over the course of his show that he was constantly kind of weaving in. He wasn't just telling you the news. He was guiding you along on a journey of a story he wanted to tell. And I think that's why the audience had a really personal uh, attachment to him, similar in some ways to the way Glenn Beck used to do his show on Fox. I'm curious, though, because I think I think long term Fox will probably figure it out. But I'm curious if you look back at when Glenn Beck left or when you left, Megan, or when, when Bill O'Reilly left, you know, were there were there drops as well? And, and, and how long did it take Fox to sort of dig out of that hole? Well, when Bill and I left, it was during the Trump era. So I don't know that you can compare that. I mean, I left January of 2007. He had just won. It was about to take over. Like, there was yeah. no way they weren't going to get ratings at that point. Um, and Bill left during the first year of Trump. So same same situation now. It's a little different. I mean, yes, we're in a political year. Uh, and Fox has turned on Trump. So I don't know that they're going to be taking all the rallies and the campaign events the way they used to. CNN seems ready to do that, as they did the first time. Then they kind of broke up with him. Now they seem to want to get married again. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm not sure so far if they're hemorrhaging. The, the audience is so angry, they're punishing them up and down the board. And I will tell you, you know, this drip, drip, drip of kill him uh, is backfiring. Everything they've released, and I'm, I'm sure it's them. It's my opinion. I don't have proof, but I'm sure uh, in my head that it's Irina Briganti who's pouring through Tucker's on-camera but off-air moments to try to find anything to make him look bad. And one of the reasons I suspect Irina Briganti is, A, I think she's a very terrible person, and B, um, I know for a fact that when I went over to Fox News to give my one and only interview about NBC post my end at NBC, I gave it to Tucker. We've been friends for a long time. And I know, because I have a lot of sources and a lot of friends inside of that building who are way more loyal to me than they are to Irina Briganti, that she taped me and that Tucker's team had protocols in place. They were in D.C. at that time. She's up in New York. They had protocols in place to protect their on-air feed, which would go up to New York from being bastardized or taped or, you know, so that nobody could use anything against Tucker or anybody else in those days, right? They they were suspicious of people like her as I was. And she tried to undo the protocols the day I was there. She tried to get the tech guys to basically undo the protections so she could tape me and potentially use it against me, anything I said to Tucker during the commercial breaks. Well, guess what? She didn't get anything. I didn't do anything. Because like, unlike Irina, I'm not a bad person. So she can right off. Um, but that happened. That's how devious this person is. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that she did it to, t- to Tucker too, who she hated for a long, long time. He didn't like her either. He- it's on record already in the Dominion case. He called her the C word. Some people think he was talking about Suzanne Scott. He wasn't. He was talking about Irina. Uh, and there's no one in the building who likes this person. Even the Murdochs don't like this person. They tolerate her because she's a vicious snake who could be used to hurt other people. Um, this is how I feel about her after having worked with her for 13 years. The other day I said I worked there for 20 years. That's not true. I worked there for 13. But I know how this place operates. And I, the, what they're doing to him isn't working. The audience is only falling more in love with him as they see the way he is off the air. Right, right. And I think I think one of the things what you just said is is a very important point, because what makes Tucker unique is that he is incredibly brave, that he will question all of the assumptions, even some that, that may sit un- uncomfortably with his own audience. He is not afraid to ask difficult questions to kick over every single rock. And he is very transparent with his audience. He always is. And he is so he's he's exactly what you want in a journalist, somebody who will look at what everybody else is writing and be like, hey, wait a minute. You know what? Maybe if the crowd is going one direction, we need to explore what's in the other direction. I mean, he is exactly what people used to get or maybe maybe didn't always get injured, but it's what people want. When you when you turn on the news, you want to know what it is that you're not hearing. You want the information that that the, the corporate media is not telling you. Tucker told that to his audience every 
every single night. And the fact that so many people in the corporate media are offended by it, don't like it, are trying to shut him up, only makes his audience love him even more because it confirms, it validates the reason they were watching him in the first place. Right, because there's this herd mentality to journalism now, right? Where everybody sort of moves the same direction and there's an established narrative and that's what, you know, the, that's the current thing, whether, you know, um, whether it's Ukraine or Russiagate or whatever, everybody's on the exact same line and nobody's asking questions. Right. So Tucker always countervailed that, right? And that's how journalism used to be. It's like one newspaper goes up with a bunch of reporting, their rival goes out and has to double check it and see if they got all their, you know, their facts right, if they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. And journalism isn't like that anymore. It's everybody just builds on the same narrative and never, never double checks the facts. And that's what's great about, about Tucker and it's the reason why he's going to have longevity beyond Fox. The one thing I would say about the leaks is if you're trying to damage the credibility of Tucker Carlson and explain to your audience why he had to be let go, I think Media Matters is probably the worst place in America you go to get a story written. Yeah. Right. His audience doesn't pay attention to Media Matters. They see Fox's (laughs) fingerprints on it. Unless that is you work at CNN, in which case apparently you see nothing. I mean, I'll tell you something else. I, it's very clear to me that Irina Briganti is trying to suppress any commentary yours truly is making about her. I can see her fingerprints there too. Normally somebody like me making claims like this about somebody like her would be all over a website like Mediaite, which covers journalists and news about journalists. And certainly when one journalist says something like I'm saying, um, they, you know why it's not there? Because she's got them by the balls. They're afraid of her. She's their sieve of leaks and access to anything about Fox. So they're too scared to write it up. Newsmax has been covering it because she doesn't have them by the balls. Um, CNN, same. They also rely on this woman because they need to go to her for access on stories like this one, Tucker. And they can't afford to upset this lady because she's powerful. Uh, so there are very few of us who are willing to say what we know about her. Um, and I'll, this brings me to reliable sources. I believe it's now written by Oliver Darcy since uh, Brian Seltzer was fired. Listen to this nonsense. This is from the newsletter. The question continues to be, who is leaking this footage and why? <laughs> Okay, that's really not a question for most of us. The videos appear to have been sourced from Fox News's internal video library. You think, Oliver? You think? Who the hell else would have access to Tucker sitting on set in between the commercial breaks? Meaning, it would have required someone with access to those systems to download the footage. But surely that would leave some trace. I have asked Fox spokespeople whether the network is conducting a probe into who might have leaked the footage. Irina, are you probing yourself? but I've not received an answer. If you are the person leaking the footage and would like to chat about it, do get in touch. That's that's the journalistic level over at CNN right now from their new media reporter. <laughs> Who? Hmm, hmm. Mm. Let me reach out to the main suspect and see if she will out herself. Oh, nothing? No one? Weird. Yeah, it sort of reminds me back uh, when Variety had the story up on Don Lemon and, and CNN PR was like, you know, I don't know where these stories could be coming from about the personnel records of Don Lemon. And it couldn't be us. <laughs> it's, it's the one, just, the one question I, I was wanting to ask you uh, when we were scheduled for today is you've had your own show on multiple networks and now you've built your own empire online. What do you think Tucker does next? Do you think another I mean, I think, can poach him? Could they even afford him? Or I don't know how the contracts work. No, I mean, look, the only real appeal of a company like Newsmax is he could be live. And I know he likes being live. Um, but I don't think that's going to be powerful enough for him to go work for somebody else. I really don't. He can make a fortune in the digital lane. He won't have to have a boss. He'll still have tons of power. You know, he has access to all these GOP power players who, no, they're not going to want to kiss the ring the way they did when he was in the APM on Fox. But he's still a bit of a kingmaker. And I think he'll still have independent power to get these GOP candidates to come on and, you know, talk with him and make news in this election cycle. And he'll have power beyond politics. I always wanted to grow my own vegetable. When you said in that video that Ms. Leeds would not be your first choice, you were referring to her physical looks, correct? Just the overall. Not, I, I look at her, I see her, I hear what she says, whatever. You wouldn't be a choice of mine either, to be honest with you. I hope you're not insulted. I would not, under any circumstances, have any interest in you. I'm being, I'm honest when I say it. Uh, she, I would not have any interest in. When you said it, <laughs> you do say in the video that as part of trying to have sex with this woman, you took her furniture shopping, correct? Uh, we actually did look for furniture, yes. So, 
That was true. You actually Which, took this woman. I think so. I mean, it's been a long time ago. It's how long is that? Long time ago, but I think so. I do think so. Is that the only occasion when you took a woman shopping? I think so. And you say, and again, this has become very famous in this video. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the pussy? Well, that's what it's. If you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. Capitalism was built on stolen land, stolen labor, and stolen resources. And a check today could not um, undo the cumulative impact of generations of that stolen wealth in all of those categories. And so I think it has to come in the form of land, labor, and resources in an ongoing fashion. And there are structures that we have that could be flipped to begin to do that, that reparations. Um, in fact, my opponent here mentioned Five Points and the Corridor and what has happened to our businesses there. Part of what has catalyzed that um, exponential decimation of black businesses is the... Okay, so she wants to tax, tax uh, white businesses more and subsidize uh, black businesses. I'd like to show you something. I'd like to show you a graph. Steve Saylor, who's a very clever chap, uh, and he has an uh, analytic bent, which a lot of us in the uh, commentariat, to be honest, don't have. So if he sees a couple of interesting uh, numbers in some obscure report by a UN agency, he'll put them all out on a spreadsheet and take a look at them at, at what they really mean and what's underpinning them. And a couple of years ago, he looked at the statistics from the UN Population Division and decided to put them into one handy little graph. And this is the graph. It's basically the 2012 UN Population Division report, Population Projections. And uh, it's easy to follow. That blue line is Europe. And Europe from 1950 to the end of the 21st century is basically flatlined at 500 million people. And this yellow line is Africa. And if you go back to 1950, Africa had about half the population of Europe. At the beginning of this century, it caught up with Europe. Okay, that's actually quite extraordinary in itself, uh, that uh, Africa's population caught up with Europe's uh, beginning of the 21st century. And there, from there on in, it is going to soar. It is going to soar to over 4 billion people. Over 4 billion people, uh, or getting on for two-thirds of what the planet's total population was at the beginning of this century. Europe flatlined at half a billion uh, Africa at four and a quarter billion. What does that mean? Is that more important than uh, whether that nice Monsieur Macron seems so much more pleasant and agreeable than Madame La Pen? It means something. Steve Saylor calls this the, uh, the most important graph of our time, and it is. Uh, the Mediterranean is a very narrow body of water that separates uh, the developed world from uh, what is frankly the most dysfunctional part of the developing world, which is what Africa is. Uh, and those 6,000 people who entered Italy on Friday and Saturday, they're making a very rational decision. They're making the same rational decision that anybody would make uh, when you have somewhere that is squalid and intolerable next to somewhere that is boundlessly wealthy uh, and in terms of its welfare payments, extravagant beyond anybody's wildest dreams in Africa. Um, 
these these figures we, we don't think of it in those terms we uh, everybody over a certain age somehow still thinks that yes africans have a lot of children but most of them die in uh, childbirth so what's the big deal in fact infant mortality they made enormous strides <coughs> in africa mainly thanks of course to western medicine and as a result if you have a ton of children the chances are they're all going to be a, be alive and well in a country that cannot support that number of people meanwhile you have europe where increasingly large numbers of people have no children. 30% of German women are childless. Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, is one of them. Uh, her new friend, uh, Monsieur Macron, doesn't have any... Okay, thank you, Mark Stein. Okay, Peter Navarro What are your thoughts, here? one, with what's going on at Fox, and as well as uh, uh, any thoughts you may have with Tucker, not, not related to Abby, just Tucker himself? Well, again, a little breaking news for your show. Um, in terms of my cancellation, I, with Tucker, I, I was on Tucker every once in a while. He doesn't, you know, but... Um, he had scheduled me twice to come down to his Florida Fox Nation studio to do the all hour long special, kind of, kind of like this. And both times those got canceled. And uh, at the time, I, I, was, I was wondering whether it was part of the broader cancellation of Fox. Um, but now I'm sure of that. So I'm kind of wondering how he let that happen in some sense. I mean, I got pulled on my way to the, the, the video truck from Janine's show twice. I, so, so I think Tucker, I, I think Tucker was, was really pissed off at the restraints that Fox was trying to put on him. And I think that probably led him to, to even fight harder for what he wanted to say, which, which kind of escalated the whole thing. But, but look, Fox, I think Fox will be just more than happy to let Fox News kind of fade sort of into the sunset. They'll have like a steady thing. Cable TV is, I mean, this is the future right here, right? It's, it's a streaming model. Uh, the Fox audience demo is, is, a, is a cable news, very old demographically. It's like the Chinese population is, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of literally dying off. And they'll make all their money off Fox uh, Sports, which is a which is a bonanza, and, and Fox Entertainment, and all the other kind of stuff they do. But the politics of Fox News is quite quite simple. You have uh, the, the Never Trump traditional Rhino Republican and name only wing in control of the network right now, with the help of Lachlan and James Murdoch, who are effectively Democrats. Roger Ailes is gone, so he no longer pleases that. And Fox is Never Trump and and adopts that persona strictly for business purposes. That's where the money is. That's where the, the Wall Street globalist money, uh, the Pfizer money that runs all the big farmer ads, and they just as soon have Trump go away. So they stop televising his rallies. They don't have him on very often. Surrogates like me, Rudy, Mike Flynn, Don Jr., you know, it's like we're, we're person in non grata. Laura Trump left there. And I think it's important, you know, look, look, I urge people now to cut the cord. There's, there's a, a frequent guest host on you know, Steve Bannon's War Room Pandemic. Uh, there's, there's Newsmax, which is just up the road from here. There's the uh, One uh, America oh, yeah. News Network. Um, and then there's just a wealth of podcasts out there that, uh, you know, the, the, the Real America's Voice, which is the one Bannon's on, also has like the young generation, Charlie Kirk, John Solomon um, at six with kind of the inside scoop. So my point is that, that don't watch Fox. You, they're, they're lying to you. That, they're lying to you until they change their ways. There's no reason to watch Fox. Tucker was pr pretty much the only reason why. Fox is lying to you. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so let's define that. Kennedy. Yes. Look, I, you got I feel bad. You got some people that are still no, 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 no. You got like, some names look, here. Look, so. look, look, look. The whole election issue, yeah. they, they bullied Hannity and Laura Ingram into kind of like, oh, it's like, leave it alone. Let's look at the next. That was the spin. That all came from the second floor, came from the Murdochs. Um, but, the, but the lie, look, Fox will still throw red meat on the traditional issues. But at the end of the day, they're not going to tell you the truth about everything from, from communist China, the, the real truth, to the Jan 6th, to November 3rd, any of that. They're just not. And And – you know, the Carl Rove's, I mean, you look at Carl Rove, right? He's like, he's like the most powerful person on the air. And Paul Ryan, the ex-speaker of the House on the board of directors, is the most powerful person at Fox off the air besides the, the family itself. So do, do, you think, do, you think, do you think Fox and Murdoch's 
there's a lot of talk. They're like, oh, we're going to silence uh, Tucker the next 18 months, and they're going to keep paying him on the contract, and they're not going to release him because they're worried he's going to be able to influence the election a lot, so they're going to have to silence him there. Do you think, if let's just say that, that theory is correct, do you think Fox and Murdoch's are for DeSantis? To help anybody him. but Trump. So, but is it anybody but Trump? Yes. Or it, is it a liberal, then DeSantis, then Trump? No, no, it's, it's anybody, anybody but Trump. Trump. Because Where? DeSantis, look, MAGA, right? At the first and foremost, what MAGA is, is the strong American manufactured base achieved by being savvy and tough in the international global trading arena. DeSantis has no experience in that. So he's, and he's getting a lot of big money from, from the Steve Schwartzmans and the Larry Finks of this world who own you know, Wall Street and all the hedge fund money who make all their money from that. So it's anybody... But Trump, and, and that's that's the way the coverage is going to go. I mean, I look at uh, I look at, for example, um, uh, the Sunday Show on Fox. You know, they have Asa Hutchinson on. These are guys like polling at less than one percent. They give them a platform. But but to your point uh, about Tucker, you know, what's their strategy? I, I was on Eric Bowling last night. Bowling is a former Fox alum mm-hmm. who got the same treatment Tucker's getting. You know, you, you push him out the door, and then the next thing you know, they're leaking all sorts of shit to try to uh, pardon me, uh, the, the reputation stuff. And here's here's the strategy with Tucker. It's very simple. What they're going to do. With Tucker, uh, they're going to keep him on the payroll for a, uh, for a while until a couple of things happen. One is that he signs a non-disclosure agreement so he won't be dumping on Fox when he leaves. Okay, that's one of the things they'd like to get. And in the meantime, they're going to use the leak machine to degrade his brand so that his, his options will be less. Whatever they are now, they'll be less by the time he gets out. And if you don't believe me, just look at the Lou Dobbs model. That's what they did with Lou. Lou was the Tucker of Fox Business, okay? He was the guy with the highest ratings on Fox Business. Tucker's the guy with the highest ratings on Fox News. What they did with Lou, you know, he was a sacrificial lamb. They fired him. They kept him on the payroll. I think it was for over a year. And now he's, you know, he's doing a podcast, and he, you know, he's, I love Lou, but he's you know, struggling to stay in the top 100. They degraded his brand. And so that's the strategy. And, and they, The only issue with Lou Dobbs is, what, almost 80? Tucker's in his early 50s? Well, he's not talking about right now. What he's saying is what they did to him right after. Yeah, that's that was a few years it's ago. The same. Wasn't, yeah, but it's not talking about personality. He's talking about it's, contract it's, strategy. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it, but Tucker's a fighter, whereas Lou Dobbs is a little bit older. It's, it's going to be harder to, to silence someone that's way more mainstream than Lou and Dobbs. And what was Lou's sin? Patriotism. Yeah. I mean, Tucker, look, Tucker's, you, you're right on. Tucker's a bigger... I got a point because you're talking about Lou. 77. You know, Tucker's 53 or 54. Yeah. And yeah. With due respect yeah. to Lou Dobbs, I watch Fox Business all the time. Charles Payne and, yeah, yeah. and Neil Cavuto, I think they're great. Bart Aroma. Tucker's way bigger than Lou Dobbs. No, 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 I'm just saying. I'm yeah. saying, but saying so, yeah. so what if somebody, like, like the what, Fox, they, they learn from what they what did if somebody to Lou. Offers, that's, that's the what if somebody offers to buy Tucker's current remaining contract with Fox, release him, and sell it? No, they, 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 look, the big thing is the non-disclosure. Okay, they don't want Tucker going off and, and talking about the inner workings of Fox. He goes, he goes over to, like, I don't know, Newsmax or uh, One America's News. Uh, they, those things, like, immediately, they, they, their whole viewership jumps dramatically. Real America's Voice brings him in. I mean, they don't they, – they have to – they have to shut him down. They have to keep him quiet. You know, they, that's what they do. If you look at what they did with Megyn Kelly, whoever, it's like they get him, they force him to sign non-disclosure deals, and they leak. That's the big thing. They're leaking all sorts of stuff right now to kind of make Tucker look, certain look like a story. You know, what, what, you know race, they, they do the yeah. same thing that Trump gets. He's a misogynist. He's a racist. He's a this. He's a that. You can't believe any of that crap. There's a playbook here. Is what yeah, there's saying. a playbook, and they're following the playbook. It's just business, and it's scurrilous business. It's business without ethics or morals, and that's why I say the people who watch Fox News mm-hmm. cannot trust Fox News to tell them. The truth. Well, isn't that way. politics in general? Business without morals and ethics? That's just, I mean, that's politics. Yeah, but when it? did politics become the same principles for journalism? Okay. Well, I- While some of the texts are damning, videos really aren't that different from what you'd see on a show. But where are these leaks coming from and why? The conventional wisdom is that they're coming from Fox News, eager to portray Carlson in the worst light possible and potentially explain why they fired him. But if that were really the goal and that's who did it, it is seemingly backfired, allowing him to become even more of a martyr after the leaks. Now, there is another theory of how and why this is coming to light. Deep in the New York Times report is this passage about the how white men fight text 
The text alarmed the Fox board, which saw the message a day before Fox was set to defend itself against Dominion voting systems before a jury. The board grew concerned that the message could become public at trial when Mr. Carlson was on the stand, creating a sensational and damaging moment that would raise broader questions about the company. The day after the discovery, the board told Fox executives it was bringing an outside law firm to conduct an investigation into Mr. Carlson's conduct. So could it be someone on the board? Could it be someone from Dominion? Is it Fox News themselves? Joining me now is someone who knows this area very well, the host of the Death of Journalism podcast, John Ziegler. John, thanks for coming back on the show. Appreciate it. So what is your best guess as to why these leaks are coming out and who's doing it? And I think this is a lot like a losing presidential campaign, where at the end, everyone leaks everywhere trying to make sure that they don't get blamed for a disaster. And let's be clear, the Tucker Carlson firing is a disaster for Fox News Channel, at least in the short run, and I believe actually in the long run. Now, let's break this down. First, the New York Times situation. I believe that someone on the board is currying favor with and signaling their virtue to the New York Times, who is a day late and at least a dollar short on a story that everyone else has been chasing. That text involving how white men don't fight is not how Tucker Carlson or why Tucker Carlson was fired. Anyone who believes that has never seen Tucker Carlson's show. <laughs> I believe that the, time, the Times is clearly just trying to latch on to something that would fit their political agenda, which is they want to make the appeal of Tucker Carlson inherently racist. And that, I think, is what the Times is doing. The Wall Street Journal story, which dovetails perfectly with what I told you the night of the firing on this show, where I told you this was about redacted messages about a boss, I believe is far more truthful, which makes a lot more sense, since obviously the Wall Street Journal is owned by the same company as Fox News channel. And I'm a bit confused, Dan, how it is in a post-Me Too 2023 world where there's any confusion about the fact that calling your female boss the C-word and then telling the lawyers who were bragging to you that they got it redacted from the lawsuit that he wants it to be known by the whole world that you called it a C-word is not a fireable tense. I find that kind of bizarre, especially in this day and age. Yeah, and, and I think you make a good point about sort of watching Tucker's show. I want to play this. This is, uh, this is number one, because this is just one of many examples of Tucker. Here, here he was mocking the uh, Tennessee Three's Justin Pearson for previously acting white. I want to bring everyone together, said Justin Pearson, in a voice that if you closed your eyes, you could easily imagine coming from a suburban orthodontist. Justin Pearson wasn't white. That's probably how we got into voting in the first place. But he did a fantastic impression of it. What a nice young man. Has he considered the apprenticeship program at Citibank? That was the old Justin Pearson before his transition. I mean, that's worse than talking about, if you're going to just sort of weigh everything, that's worse than the, the leaked text. And so I think you're right to suggest that for people to somehow now say, oh, my goodness, that's the reason that Tucker Carlson was fired. It doesn't make any sense. So you think that there's mixed motivations here in terms of the different leaks to different places? Yeah, and I think that what really happened here is that Tucker Carlson, Oxen's Razor, got too big for his britches, become, became unmanageable. I think he became a bit unhinged. I mean, let's be real about this. His firing has now become uh, a universal martyr situation. Every conspiracy cause in the world can now point to Tucker Carlson and say, that's the reason he got fired. John Ziegler, the one thing you always know. Back now with Jeffrey Tubin, whose new book, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism, is out now and getting excellent reviews. But let's talk now about your exit from CNN and what's going on in your life uh, since then. After, of course, this is the incident that occurred in 2020. Zoom, masturbation, now former colleagues at The New Yorker were involved, among others. Subsequently fired from the magazine. You left CNN. Um, what's life been like for Jeffrey Tubin? Well... Let's talk about the incident itself. Yeah. It, was, it was a disaster in my life, self-inflicted, self-destructive, and something that I will regret for the rest of my life. Um, I have no excuses. I have only apologies, which I have tried to offer to everyone involved, including very much my family, which was uh, terribly embarrassed by it. But um, it's now more than two and a half years ago, and uh, a lot has happened, almost all good since then. And uh, I feel like my life is in a very good place, actually. And what exactly happened? Was it just you just left open the screen? I, you know, I'd rather not go into the, the, the grisly details. The only thing I'll say about it is I didn't know other people were, were on the Zoom call were watching. I mean, this was not an intentional act on my part. That, I, other than that, I'd rather uh, not, not go into the details. But, I mean, that, that to me, for some reason, uh, that is important to, to get out. And, and I'll be honest, I don't really want to go into the details. You know what? <laughs> then we agree. Um, so after the incident, you went on CNN and you talked about therapy and public service, et cetera. Has that happened? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I um, you know, I, I'm trying to be a better person. And 
and, and I'm, I'm still working on that. Um, I, I mentioned just sort of in passing that I work at a food bank every week, which I continue to do. And, uh, and also, you know, I've moved my life in a different direction. I, I'm not, I, I, this, this was not connected to uh, the Zoom incident. I mean, I, I was very fortunate that CNN brought me back. And I worked at CNN for over a year after um, being, being brought back. Did they fire you then? No, no, no. I was not fired by CNN. No, no I, that was a mutual decision that I left uh, last, I guess it was July, last August, where I, um, you know, I, we've been in the similar business for a long time. I'd done 20 years of live shots. I was, I was ready to, to do something else. In fairness, I should point out that it, it was a new management um, that, that was less fond of me than the old management, so I can't say they were brokenhearted to see me go. But, you know, I got a package to go. And, you know, I'm back to being a writer, which is how I started this whole thing. And, you know, writing Homegrown, uh, doing magazine work. I've got a bunch of Hollywood projects in the works, including a, a limited series based on Homegrown. Um, Okay, so why exactly was Tucker fired? I think this may be the best explanation yet. Just a battle over This analysis power. was written by Philip Bump. Was the Tucker Carlson firing just about power? Books about Donald Trump, dozens of which have been written in the past eight years, are often replete with new insights that further flesh out our understanding of the former president and his rise to power. Few quotes, though, offer as blinding a revelation as one offered in Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's The Divider. It's not about Trump, really, as much as it is about Fox News's response to Trump's emergence in 2015. Baker and Glasser described the concern Fox News founder and President Roger Ailes expressed as the first debate of the 2016 presidential nominating contest approached. What Ailes saw in Trump that he did not see in any other Republican politician of recent years, they write was someone who connected with the Fox audience even more than Fox did. This proved to be prophetic. In that first debate, the Fox News moderators tried to trip up Trump, pressing him on his past rhetoric about women and his loyalty to the party. He parried the attacks easily. In short order, the channel took a keep-your-enemies-close approach, figuring that sharing a base with Trump was better than losing viewership. Fox News viewers were soon the most loyal supporters of the president. Then Trump lost. Senior employees at Fox, including Rupert Murdoch and host Tucker Carlson, were privately eager to turn the page. Both Murdoch and Carlson mused to others that Trump would soon be out of the network's hair. Before that could happen, though, Fox News needed to navigate the interregnum, the lame duck period in which Trump and the channel were engaged in a tug-of-war for their shared base's loyalty. With some election fraud-related difficulty, they did so. In part, that was because of Carlson. With Trump sidelined both by his election loss and his post-Capitol riot muffling on social media, Carlson's star began to shine more brightly. His was the most-watched primetime cable news show last year. Sean Hannity was the host most closely defined with the Trump presidency, but Carlson was the face and voice of the post-presidency. And he knew it. Carlson was given a bigger platform in the Fox universe at the tail end of the Trump administration, and he used it to champion a variety of causes that diverged from the rest of the network. He elevated baseless conspiracy theories about the causes of the Capitol riot as he sought to shift blame from right-wing rioters to government-backed provocateurs. He railed against U.S. support for Ukraine against Russia, becoming a darling of Russian media in the process. Now imagine your Fox News. It's 2022, and you've managed to weather the transition from Trump to President Biden, becoming the loyal opposition to the Democratic president. But with the threat posed by Trump still simmering, there's a new, competing power center emerging, your own host. In an interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper this week, a former producer on Carlson's show, Abby Grossberg, described how Carlson and his team were aware of that power. 
she was surprised Carlson was fired, she told Cooper, because I thought his team was invincible. And they believed they were, too, by the way that they behaved. Grossberg is suing Fox for discrimination. Cooper asked Grossberg how far Carlson's sense of political power extended. I have messages I was just looking at today saying, we are the most powerful political platform in the Republican Party, Grossberg said, referring to messages from Carlson's executive producer, Justin Wells. And they acted that way, especially leading up to the 2022 midterms. She described interactions with elected officials who worried that Carlson would upend their campaigns in just one interview. And, she said, it went further. They believed that he could broker who was Speaker, House Speaker, Grossberg told Cooper. He wanted to do that live on air. She described a plan, allegedly articulated by Wells, that would have Carlson interview Republic-elect Kevin McCarthy, Republican, California, shortly before the Republican caucus. Right, so Tucker Carlson thought that he could broker who would be the Speaker of the House of Representatives. I mean, he has had enormous power in the Republican Party. Met to, eventually, select McCarthy as Speaker. It involved a commitment from McCarthy about a select committee focused on alleged misbehavior by federal law enforcement, a select committee that has since been instantiated. Fortunately for McCarthy's sake, he said no, Grossberg said. But he did call Tucker the next day from his office with Representative Thomas Massey, Republican, Kentucky, and had agreed to some of Tucker's terms, according to a text that Tucker had sent me. And he said that was a win. Representative Matt Gates, Republican, Florida, who Grossberg described as being an ancillary part of the effort to finalize the speaker vote on air, rejected the idea that such a scheme existed. This seems to call into question many of the claims made by this disgruntled employee, he wrote on Twitter. Carlson was nonetheless flexing this power on air in other ways. At one point, he submitted a questionnaire to Republican presidential candidates, soliciting their views on the war in Ukraine. For the candidates, the offer presented a conundrum with three possible resolutions. You could ignore Carlson and invoke his wrath. You could respond in a way that conflicted with Carlson's approach and see the same outcome. Or you could play along and ingratiate yourself with his audience, but let Carlson guide your foreign policy positions. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Republican, chose that third option and got hammered as a result. For Carlson, though, it was win-win. Flex being the most powerful political platform in the Republican Party. Get more people to espouse his Ukraine-skeptical approach. But it's not clear that's what Fox wanted, certainly. Is it useful for the network to have a primetime host using the platform you're giving him in a way that undermines or destabilizes other elements of the GOP? Had Carlson become another person who connected with the Fox audience even more than the network overall? Ostensibly, Carlson's firing was a function of the messages unearthed during the discovery phase of the massive lawsuit the company faced for its embrace of election fraud conspiracies. But the company had long stood behind Carlson even after his most noxious pronouncements and despite his freelancing on conspiracy theories. Were they not aware of the sexist climate Grossberg alleges? Or was that not the reason at all? It wasn't just Carlson that was fired, mind you. So was Justin Wells, his executive producer, the one who Grossberg told Cooper was the source of a lot of the scheming. Maybe his firing was about the workplace Wells allowed. Or maybe it was about power. It certainly seems as though Carlson might see his ouster through that lens. The Washington Post reported on Thursday that he was exploring the idea of hosting his own Republican primary debate, 
an effort that would mean sacrificing income Fox is otherwise obligated to provide. Maybe this was the deal all along, Carlson got money and a platform from Fox News as long as he remained subjugated to the company. When he starts competing with the network for power, the deal's off. Yeah, so maybe it uh, just came down to power. And Tucker Carlson gave an address last yeah, night. The intro here is much shorter than Tucker's Wikipedia page. But we are very honored to have him with us. And I've always wanted to say this when I introduce someone, but um, how about a man who really needs no introduction, Tucker Carlson. Ignore that. 
Be like your dog, who understands not a single word of what you're saying, but knows exactly who you are. <laughs> and watch instead how they do. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting to look at the population numbers in Alabama. Are people moving to Alabama? Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Big time. And I love that. Why are they moving here? Well, they're moving here because Alabama is everything that you would want in a place that you live. It has cohesive communities, super nice people, gentle people, people who care about their neighbors. And it has an abundance of nature, something that we, I think, undervalue. Went through this weird kind of mass hypnosis where everyone was convinced we have to move to some horrifying concrete city in order to make a living and sort of forgot that actually you need to see green or else you go insane. Amen. If you get too alienated from God's creation, you become fundamentally alienated. Yeah. Nature is the most beautiful thing. Driving around here today, I thought to myself, when you think of Alabama, if you don't live in Alabama, as a sort of a place that has a lot of the past attached to it. And I thought today, and especially reading the numbers and what's happening in your city, but Alabama is not the past. Alabama is the future. Yep. And what a great sign that is. Anyway, so I, I love being here and I will be back. But the second and maybe primary reason I wanted to come to this especially, Rainbow Mega especially, is because I really, in a sincere way, support what they do, which is helping people, not in an abstract way, but in an actual way. And I went out to the campus today and was completely shocked by it, which is completely, I don't know how many of you have driven out there, but it's not far and you should go. It's just stunning in its beauty, and in the vibe you feel when you're there. Now, the band came up and they were sort of standing, talking right in the middle of the road. And there were a pair of twins and, and another person. And I looked, at the, I looked at these people in their early 20s. And this girl turned to me and her face was so radiant. Ah, it made me emotional looking at her. And I thought to myself, this is a Christian institution. I am no theologian. One of the opposite of the theologian is that's me. But I thought, you know, I don't really understand a lot of this. God, God's on that person's side. God thinks a lot more of her than he thinks of me. That's the first thing I thought. And I mean it. There was something about this girl's face that just, again, radiated uh, love. And I, wow, what a beautiful moment that was for me. And how much did that say about what Rainbow Omega does? Not only was it not depressing. It was completely uplifting. And some of the kids who lived there were here tonight and talked to them. Remarkable. So why is that so important? Well, it's important because helping people is the core mission of life uh, for all of us. And it's the core duty that we have to one another to help. But it's the opposite kind of, of what you see in the rest of the country. I hate to say that I won't be depressing, but I won't be, and I'm not going to go on some long Jeremiah about how things are bad. I, I think you may have heard that already. Uh -huh. <laughs> 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 when I got canned the other day, my wife's like, oh, this is not all bad. That was pretty depressing what you were saying. Yeah, I got it. Uh, maybe you should do a good news show. All right. Uh, <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> So unbelievable. 300 acres and just, just beautiful, just bucolic, pristine. 
And I said, and this just shows you what a lifetime of living in the Northeast does to your brain. I said, who did this? And I thought immediately there was some, you know, obviously a local billionaire, some retail billionaire who paid for this. Oh, the carpenter started it in 1990. Oh, okay. And I'm thinking, obviously billionaires of some kind. What did they do? Oh, he was a preacher. Really? Where did all the money come from? Well, just people, you know, who wanted to help. And they had a son with developmental disabilities, and he needed help. Okay, let's uh, check out what's going on with uh, Fox News right now. I appreciate the question. Uh, we uh, we had a, a, a joint press conference just recently, so that occurred. Uh, I don't have anything to share about Spain and their travels. It is a diplomatic conversation uh, that occurs when, when we talk about what they're going to be doing here at the White House. I just don't have anything more to share on that. Nothing more to share. The Biden campaign following a similar strategy of keeping Joe locked up. Joe Rogan and Charlemagne the God are not pleased. Well, you have to go, well, who could do it better? Could it be a Republican or it could be a better Democrat? And if it's not a better Democrat, like, how are we going to get a better Democrat if you don't let the president debate? So it's like, that's not that Democratic. It's whack that the DNC won't let nobody prime. They won't do no primaries. Put Joe Biden up on that stage with Bobby Kennedy, who's challenging them, and Marianne Williamson, and whoever steps up to the plate. And let's have a discussion, yo. Makes sense to me. Yeah, he's got a debate. He won't. Okay, so we're going to have a new King of England coronation uh, tomorrow. This is the blessing from the chief rabbi of the British Empire. He who gives salvation to kings and dominion to princes, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, may he bless our sovereign Lord King Charles, our gracious Queen Camilla, the Prince and Princess of Wales, and all the royal family. So Jews have uh, really been popular. They have long relied on support from elites such as princes, billionaires, and the people with uh, a lot of power. And they want to help other people as they helped him. And I said, well, who paid for it? Well, just people, you know, who kind of stepped up and did that. And I thought that actually is the way things should work. Amen. I live in a world, it's true. I live in a world where... the world that I have spent my life in is where everyone just kind of sits around and waits for Mark Zuckerberg to show up and write a check. Yep. It's true. It's almost like a feudal arrangement where, like, if the feudal lord doesn't fix it, it just remains broken. And to hear that there was a couple living on a preacher's salary who had a problem and decided to solve it and by solving it solve the problem of so many other families and then make a lifetime commitment to those kids. A lifetime commitment. Who makes a lifetime commitment? Like, to your wife? That's kind of it. But to say to someone you're not related to, yeah, uh, I'm signing up for life. Your life, no matter how long you live. Wow. We're here for the duration. Who does that? Let's check. Nobody. But this preacher did that? With no money? And then people in the community stepped up because they so believed in it to fix it? And so that's, that's the model right there. That is what it looks like to help people. Amen. Now, I'm not attacking billionaires. I, mean, I, I guess there's some good I have them at a time. But I believe that there are, because I think that there are all kinds of people, and a lot of them are great people. But the model that we now sort of accept as normal, where 
you know, the economy kind of degrades and then you wait for this sort of Lone Ranger to show up and save everybody with some big check and some huge idea about how we're going to end malaria or stop the global warming or whatever. And I'm not even attacking that. I'm just saying, as we're worried about these big abstract problems in faraway places or saving the planet or claiming we can control the weather or whatever we're, we're claiming, there are kids with developmental disabilities who have aging parents, and the parents are legit terrified about what happens when they pass. Yeah. Wow, Tucker is a great public speaker. I mean, he is really connecting with the audience there. Why wouldn't they be? I can't imagine a greater fear. I have four children, and none of them have disabilities, but even I think, why? You know, I gotta wait till they're all married to people I like. <laughs> is there a more human concern right. than that? I don't think there is. Is there anybody in this room who wouldn't be kind of ready to go if you thought your kids were set? I don't think there is. I think that's the most basic desire there is. To see the generations continue in stability and happiness. To know the ones you love are going to be okay. There is no greater concern than that. And anyone who's not answering that concern is not really focused. So this is much more of a traditional conception of morality. That uh, morality and loyalty goes in concentric circles. This is the traditional right-wing perspective. That your first you know, primary loyalty is to yourself, to your family to your extended family, your friends, your community, your, your church, your synagogue, and keeps moving out in these concentric circles while left-wing morality does all these leaps and jumps. So your primary loyalty may well be to your family, and then it is to lesbians in Uganda who are being persecuted. But a traditional conception of reality is that it expands outward in concentric circles from your family. It's on the core human problem. The core human problem is how are your children doing? Can, can anybody go bigger problem than that? I can. In, in actual, in real life, not in like, you know, nonprofit think tank life, where we sit and think about how to save the world. Okay, save the world, that's great. Ruts are rough, as they say. But in the meantime, like, what's going to happen to your children? And so I think maybe that's the way you need to assess American politics which is, after all, supposed to be designed to improve people's lives. Like, what's the point of it, actually? And I've been thinking about this for a long time. I've been covering the, covering the news, or at least immersed in the news, or marinating in the news. I feel kind of soggy at this point. <laughs> you know, my whole life, I turned 54 in two weeks, and I've been doing this, well, since 1991, so 32 years. And... I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what the point of American politics is, honestly, because I'm not a super deep person. And I sort of accept that, you know, every two years there's a congressional election, every four years there's a presidential election, and then the parties sort of, you know, put forth their most ambitious members, and then they kind of attack each other a lot, and then somebody gets the nod, and then we have a big fight in November, and there's a new president. Okay, so you get very caught up in the details of all that stuff. I haven't noticed any media coverage. I mean, this is Tucker Carlson's first public appearance since his firing and nobody's talked about this speech i guess because it's so hard to attack this speech i mean tucker carlson honoring a commitment that he made many months ago to be the keynote speaker for the rainbow omega foundation to help raise funds for adults with disabilities and birth defects so they can lead happy and productive lives so this is his first public appearance but because 
the media can't attack him here because he is giving of his time, honoring his commitment to help the disabled. It, it get, it's, am I missing something? This has received no news media attention. But very rarely, maybe things get fired. Do you have a minute to sort of stand back and say, okay, what is the point of this exercise? We're spending billions of dollars for consuming the attention of 350 million Americans, but why are we doing that? So somebody can have power? That's not actually a worthy goal. You know, making a middle-aged man feel loved is not a good reason to have a presidential election. Okay, it's just not. The point of the entire exercise should be to help people, and primarily to help them help themselves. Amen. Because actually, sending people stuff, if you treated your children the way the federal government treats our population, it'd all be what we have. It's yep, amen. In a kind of patronizing and fanalizing way. Let me hold your hand. The world hates you. Everybody hates you. But I'm the only person who can save you. If you told that to a 13-year-old, what would happen? I mean, that would be a true disaster. It would be yep. your fault. Yep. So if you want to help somebody, what does that look like? Will you do your best to restore that person's self-respect, which only comes through achievement, right? You'd want to make that person as independent as you possibly could. This is Dennis Prager just uh, recently listed his three favorite words. Uh, one of them was should. Another one was earn. Like Dennis Prager loves the word earn. Apparently the word earn isn't used much in other languages, but it's a big word in the English language. All right, this is Ron DeSantis interrupting a reporter on sex transitioning for minors. Cultural issues that you've identified with. Do you think American voters want... How many of these people were paid to come? I mean, like, honestly, it's like, so, seriously, some of this stuff is just totally manufactured. And I, when you talk to people, and I know, like, people in your industry will dress it up with a euphemism, and they'll say it's, it's health care to cut off the private parts of a 14 or 15-year-old. That is not health care. That is mutilation. And so when we're standing up against that... And so when we're standing up against that, we're protecting these kids. We had Chloe Cole. We've had other people who, who went through this when they were minors. Now they're older. And it's like the biggest regret of their life. They feel like that they were manipulated. I understand there's some physicians that are very ideological about it. But the fact is, people go through a lot when they're teenagers. You grow out of it most of the time in these situations. 80, 90% resolves by the time you get there, Sweden, these European countries that went down this road have done a big U-turn. They said this is not good uh, uh, medical practice, and so they don't do it anymore. So all we're doing is, is doing what's right. Um, the idea that this would have been something that people would have been – it would have even been controversial even like 10 years ago – would not have been something that anybody would have said anything about. And I just think, you know, when you're, when you're talking about this stuff, uh, talk about what did the legislature do? The legislature prohibited doing things like double mastectomies. They prohibited doing things, you know, with, uh, with male private parts that are very graphic. Okay, let's get back to Tucker Carlson's first public appearance. It was last night in Oxford. This is not some right-wing talking point. It's just an observation about people. That seems very obvious, and it doesn't seem like a partisan point at all. It seems like one that any person, particularly any parent, who's actually watched human development over time, watch your kids grow, what's good for them, what's bad for them, it seems like we could, we could agree on that. 
And so I'm starting to think, I have thought for quite a while, but I'm starting to really believe that the divisions that... <laughs> Is Tucker a smoker? No, he's not a smoker, but he does love his nicotine gum. I think he was a smoker at one point. We see in our society are pretty much manufactured, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much fake. I mean, I can say I've you know, spent all these years on TV and like for the past, well, really since about the second term. The first term was all about how we're going to get past race and everyone, I didn't vote for the guy, of course, because I didn't agree with him. But everyone I knew was excited about that. But so was I. I mean, invite some, you know, elect some guy who I disagree with, but if we get to the point where we can all stop picking at the scab and move forward as one country, I mean, I'm just for that. I'm sorry. Why wouldn't I be for that? You know, as a Christian, I was totally for that. And the second term was like, oh no, actually, we're not post-racial. All we're going to talk about is race and make people hate each other on the basis of race. And I was like, kind of bewildered by this. It's taken really all these years to figure out what that was. And we've never stopped talking about it ever since. Race, race, it's all about race. And I have to say, I don't travel a ton, but when I do, no one's ever come up to me and even mentioned race of any color. It doesn't seem, it seems like we may be overstating that. I have heard, I mean, I'm not on the internet at some but like, not everyone loves me. I don't want to freak you out or anything. But, <laughs> you know, some who are not completely sold. Fair. And that's fine. You know, you don't need to be. Um, you know, and some are, like, truly not sold. Like, just confirmed non-fans of mine. But in my real life, like, flying on planes or, you know, going to CBS or whatever. Going to the, you know, wherever you go. Get a new hunting license. No one has ever come up to me and like attack me on racial grounds. And I've never heard anybody else attack anybody else on racial grounds. Never, not one time. I just maybe that exists. I don't know where it is. I don't think most Americans hate each other on the basis wow. of their ethnic differences. I just don't see that. And if you can tell me where that exists in this country, I mean I'm willing to believe it, but I'd like to go there and see it for myself. I don't think that's the main dividing line, actually. No, I think, it's not. I, mean, I think there are divisions, right? Different people are suspicious of each other. That's whatever. It's just a human condition. But I don't think there's like widespread race hatred in the country that I've ever seen, not one time. I think a lot of it is just, it, it, it's a lie, actually. Yes. Designed to distract it's people. The media. I'm sorry. It's manufactured by the media. It's totally, I, I, you know what? I think it is manufactured by the media. Okay, and a lot of that's manufactured by the right-wing media, such as Dennis Prager claims that we're in a civil war, a non-shooting civil war, okay? Non-shooting civil war is not a civil war, but all this civil war talk. Okay, yeah, so, I, you know, I haven't had a TV at that moment many, many years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel ahead of the curve on that, to be totally honest with you. I didn't need to throw mine away, it didn't exist. Pretty great. Um, so a lot of my understanding of the media and of media coverage and story selection really comes from reading about it. I don't see it that much. But from what I can tell, the overwhelming majority of stories that news organizations cover have no bearing at all on people's lives. Like gas will jump by two bucks and they'll just kind of ignore it. What? You know, people I don't really care what gas costs because they're not, I mean, that matters. Like you have to drive to work and stuff. And 
I think that's a huge story. If gas jumps dramatically, if inflation is you know, over 5% for a persistent period, real actual inflation, not CPI nonsense, but like the actual cost of things that you buy is rising faster than your wages, that seems a huge story. What's bigger than that? If our country is approaching nuclear conflict with the world's you know, largest nuclear stockpile, why would we talk about that? Why would we talk about, why would we make, make up racial conflict that doesn't exist? Well, and, okay, if you do that once or three times a year, maybe it's a mistake, maybe you're just stupid, most people maybe obviously are stupid, and they just, you know, just made a mistake. But if you're doing that every week for like 10 years, Maybe there's a reason you're doing that. Is there a reason that you're not covering any of the stories that actually matter and instead focusing on the ones that are sure to inflame division? Hey, calm down, Tucker. Great news, everyone. George Soros is getting close to buying Vice, the media entity Vice. George Soros is going to take it over. In your population? It can't be a mistake. I don't think I'm a conspiracy nut. I'm not going to say a word about UFOs in the Kennedy assassination. I'm just going <laughs> 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 to... Epstein did not kill himself. That's right. No, we're pointing back to this. Whatever. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think you need to be a conspiracy nut to wonder, like, what is that? Why are they not only not addressing the issues that matter, but they're kind of going out of their way to ignore them? And at first you think, well, it's because the people who, you know, decide what merits news coverage all live in, like, a very small number of coastal locations on the East Coast or in L.A. And they just have a certain different life experience from everybody else. They just don't know this is happening. Yeah, I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a second. They have no idea that the economy is sagging? Really? How could you not know that? They have no idea that we're actively fighting Russia in a war? Maybe you're for that, maybe you're not, but maybe we should talk about it, don't you think? Yeah. A war with nuclear power, like, worth mentioning, I think. But they go out of their way, and instead they're like, oh, by the way, you, you should hate him, and he should hate you back. And I just think that's, at some point, it's just, you have to call it what it is, which is lying. Yeah. And lying with a very specific purpose, which is to avert your gaze, to pull your attention away from the things that matter. That's not news coverage, that's, that's just... Classic propaganda. Exactly. Yeah. It's sort of scary if you think about it. And it's scary for a really simple reason. First of all, lying is always bad. It's always bad. Just lying by its nature. You know, it's it's just it's poison. And it hurts the person who does it and it harms the person who receives it. There's never a justification for it. There are excuses for it. I'm afraid of being exposed for who I really am. That's why people lie. But there's never a justification for it. It's never the right thing. And of course we all do it. We're trying to hide from others who we really are because we're ashamed. I understand that. I have a lot of kids. And I always say to my kids, you know, if you think you're hiding something, we already know. (laughs) We already know. And that's true not just your children, but the people that you know and love. People run around like, I hope nobody knows about whatever. Everybody knows. Yeah, but, you know, they can spell it on you. Like, it's true. Everybody knows. I tell my kids this all the time. Oh, you think you're hiding it, huh? No, you're not. Everybody knows. And they love you anyway. Yep. So you don't actually have to hide who you are anymore. But if you're continuing to lie like that, and if the range of 
options for getting information is shrinking, not growing, then you have a huge, huge problem. And there are two main effects of this. The first effect is to kind of end democracy. Again, the whole idea of democracy is based on the understanding that the people who vote will have some knowledge of their voting vote, what the real issues are, that they'll be informed, they'll have an informed citizen. And that's why the First Amendment is not the Eighth Amendment. It's the First Amendment. It's the predicate for democracy. You can't have democracy without free information, freely moving information, without access to what the facts are. And we can argue about what the facts are, and because of the First Amendment, we don't really have to argue because we have a, an infinite range of perspectives available to us. No one has a monopoly on the truth. As soon as someone tells you, I have a monopoly on the truth and everything else is misinformation, that person is by, by definition lying. By definition. Years ago, I... So I, I think what Tucker is saying is that everybody knows the dice are loaded and everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking. Everybody knows that the captain lied. Everybody got this broken feeling like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem rose. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that it's now or never. Everybody knows that it's me or you. And everybody knows that you live forever when you've done a line or two. Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. And everybody knows. Everybody knows that the plague is coming. Everybody knows that it's moving fast. Everybody knows that the naked man and woman are just a shining artifact of the past. Everybody knows the scene is dead, but there's going to be a meter on your bed that will disclose what everybody knows. And everybody knows that you're in trouble. Everybody knows what you've been through, from the bloody cross on top of Calvary to the beach of Malibu. Everybody knows it's coming. Take one last look at the sacred heart before it blows. Everybody knows. I worked for an editor in, uh, in Arkansas, the Rock, Arkansas, a wonderful man called Paul Greenberg. And I, I filed a piece, and one, a sentence began, the truth is, and he, this was back when he like, literally filed a piece of paper and go to his office and tray and sent it back to you, the assistant manager. This was like people smoked in the elevators, then this was a <laughs> They actually stopped smoking in the elevators of the newspaper while I worked there, and my the guy who shared the desk was like, it's just tyranny. Tell me it's just tyranny. <laughs> Okay, this is uh, Tucker Carlson being confronted while fishing. In I didn't know you could fish here. You can? You can? Yeah. What are you fishing for? Are you videotaping me? Yeah. Why? Because you're in public. I can. Well, I know you can. I, okay. I'm not challenging your right. I just okay. don't know why you I want. find it interesting that you're fishing in Central Park. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely allowed. And what do you use for bait? Uh, I'm a white fly fish, so I use flies. I'll show you. Oh, those are the things you make. You, you, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, the string. I'm stupid. I don't, I don't fly fish. That's all right. Most people don't. Oh, okay. See, and you tie them. You tie your own flies? I do, yeah. You do? Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in California. Yeah, you did a lot of fly fishing out there? Not really. No? But I learned in later life, and it's a great pleasure and a great sport. It's like relaxing, right? Very. Uh, 
And you know, you live in New York now? No. Well, I do live here part time, actually. Okay. What do you do with the video? I put it up on my channel. I have a lot of people that follow me. Do you really? Yeah. That's great. I have about, kind of... about 15,000 people that follow me. Really? Yeah. That's so neat. I didn't know you could fish here. You can? You can? Yeah. What are you fishing for? Are you videotaping me? Yeah. Why? Because you're in public. I can. Well, I know you can. I, okay. I'm not challenging your right. I just okay. want to know why you I work. find it interesting that you're fishing in Central Park. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely allowed. And what do you use for bait? Uh, I'm why fly fish, so I use flies. I'll show you. Oh, those are the things you make. Uh, you... Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, the string. I'm stupid. I don't, I don't fly fish. That's all right. Most people don't. Oh, okay. See, and you tie them. You tie your own flies? I do, yeah. You do? Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in California. Yeah, you did a lot of fly fishing out there? Not really. No? But I learned in later life, and it's a great pleasure and a great sport. It's like relaxing, right? Very. Uh, and, you know... You live in New York now? No. Well, I do live here part-time, actually. Okay. What do you do with the video? I put it up on my channel. Let's go to Palomar. Anyway, Palomar. But my editor calls me in and it said, see me. I was like completely confused. Yes, the truth is, and I walked into his office, and it's Paul Greenberg. He's a religious man, a very wise man, a cantor in the synagogue. He sang his prayers. And, uh, and he said to me, so did, when did you come to believe you possessed the truth? I said, I don't know. I don't know. He said, did you, you, so you mistaken yourself for God then? You have the truth? The truth is you're, you're telling your readers you know what the truth is? Uh, well, sir, I just, you know, I have to do We're going to take that phrase out because it suggests hubris. It suggests that you believe that you possess something that no human being can possess, which is the absolute truth about something. That's unknowable. We're people. We're not God. I was like, whoa, okay. I was 23. I've been brooding on that for the last 30 years. <laughs> but anybody who tells you that he possesses the truth is by definition lying to you. And that's why we have an unlimited variety of perspectives available to us. An unlimited variety, you know, amount of facts about what's happening in the world and what we believe will happen in the world available to us. The First Amendment guarantees that we need that in order to have democracy. Otherwise, it's not. You know, if you don't even know what the election is about, if you don't understand what the consequences of your vote could be, then why does it even matter if you vote? You're being controlled without even knowing you're being controlled. It's very insidious. But the second problem with living in a world where lying is the default setting of the news media, either explicit lying, just like telling you something that's provably untrue, or much more common, and I would say scarier, is just the exclusion of facts. So you'll read a story and it'll be factually true. In other words, a lawyer would sign off on it, but it leaves out the essence. Like, there are things they're not telling you. So are they lying to you? Yes, they are. Maybe not in a legal sense, but certainly in a deeper sense, they are lying to you. They're misleading you. And the problem when you get that, that's always existed, nothing new under the sun, as you know. But when you get that at scale, in other words, when Every outlet is doing that too. What is the effect on the population? Well, of course, they're uninformed, but it also starts to drive people crazy. Start driving people crazy. You can't believe anything. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very bewildering. That, that's actually a form of chaos, which is the one condition people just can't handle. Chaos. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's real. It's almost hallucinogenic. It's like Lucy in the sky with diamonds. <laughs> I'm serious. And 
that makes people insane after a while. Like, you don't take anything at face value. And if, you know, if you know people who are politically engaged or really interested in politics, you will have noticed in the past couple of years that very smart, educated, rational people all of a sudden are willing to entertain theories about things that would have seemed outlandish three years ago. These are the so-called conspiracy theorists we're told to be afraid of. And as in point of fact, the conspiracy theorists have a much better track record of accuracy than say the New York Times, I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but there are also cases where, I, and I have close friends like this, where, you know, if they're willing to believe things that seem, even to me, the most open-minded person you will ever meet, ever, I'm willing to believe in anything if you can prove it. I've lived long enough that I know anything is possible because I've seen it. Even I'm like, that sounds a little far out, man. A little far out. But then I think to myself, don't judge. When everything is fake, or feels fake, when you can't believe anybody in power, why wouldn't people reach those conclusions? I'm serious, like whose fault is that actually? If they can't even tell you the truth about a communicable disease that's killing people, they're absolutely lying to you about that. Amen. And not, and, and, and not just lying to you, but lying to you with the knowledge that you must know that they're lying to you. That's the spooky part. It's, it's scary, kind of. It's scary. Like, they know that we know, but they don't care, and they keep lying anyway. I went to the White House press secretary. This is, this is a yep. This is unbelievable. You'd be like, oh, whatever her name is. Dumb press secretary lady. <laughs> <laughs> Where you had a press secretary for Mike McCurry, I didn't agree with him on anything really, but I didn't think that he was patronizing me with his life. The Monica stuff, okay. No, really, it didn't happen. <laughs> but, you know, if I'm being totally honest, I disapproved of that, of course, but it's like, I'm a man, like, they lie. I didn't think he was bending reality by telling me that Clinton didn't have a relationship with Monica. This guy's like, he's paid to lie. A lot of it was just a matter of disagreement. You would say, well, here's the federal budget. This seems too big to me. And he's like, no, it's too big, and here's why. And so you have a sort of a rational conversation where there's a presumption that you weren't a total moron, that you weren't a farm animal, and that you have to be treated like a human being with respect, and they had to sort of win you over with facts. That was the bottom line. That was the bottom line assumption, right? Now I watch this president's presbyterian that's like, well, it's, you know, it's noon. No, it's not noon. No. It's not at night. It's for dark out. People are cold. Oh, it's a sunny day in August. No, it's not. It's the dark of night. No, we're going to fix that. We're going to climate policy. And... It kind of freaks me out. I mean, first of all, I'm offended because... 
well, first of all, he's a middle-aged man, and it's like, are you really patronizing me? Are you like 28? I mean, stop. <laughs> but even leaving aside my age and, you know, the grumpiness that comes with it, I'm like, <laughs> sorry, it's true. Uh, leaving that aside, I'm like, what is this? Okay, there's a much longer version of uh, the Tucker fly fishing clip, so let's let's play it. How are you doing? Great. I didn't know you could fish here. What is that? Huh? What is that? What is that? It's called the video camera. Oh, I didn't know you could fish here. You can. You can. Yeah. What are you fishing for? Are you videotaping me? Yeah. Why? Because you're in public. I can. Well, I know you can. I, okay. I'm not challenging your right. I just okay. want to know why you I want find to. it interesting that you're fishing in Central Park. I do a lot of funny stuff, though. Yeah. One of the things is I prank the media. Really? Yeah, I mess what? with them. I'm like kind of a media terrorist. What's your favorite cable channel? Uh, my favorite? To, like, actually watch news? Yeah. CNN. I watch them the most. Uh, I also like Current. Current TV's good. Uh-huh. They have a lot of interesting angles. It's very left, though. It is. Do you uh, like Oberman? Uh, I like I like Keith. He's good. You watch Fox? I watch Fox. I like to get my news from all over, and then I make up my mind in between all that. That's probably a good way to do it. Yeah, you know, huh. it's 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 worked out for me. That's great. Turns out the guy is Tucker Carlson from Fox News. Uh, I just didn't recognize him because he didn't have on the snazzy bow tie that he always wears. Um, even when he left, I was like, uh, "What do you do for a living?" He's like, oh, "I work in media." I'm like, "Do you work for Fox News?" He's like. No. And then I asked him, you know, tell him where he can get the video. I was like, are you on Twitter? And he's like, no. But it turns out he is, and he's got like 150,000 followers. So, uh, yeah, Tucker, I found out who you are. But how odd is that? That, you know, I met up with this guy who I didn't even know who he was. I just saw you some random New Yorker fly fishing in the middle of the city, which is really cool, by the way. Looked very relaxing, like he said. Um, and, and I told him that CNN story when he asked about my YouTube channels. And how I got that name, you know, and I told him, yeah, the Osef Butsky, CNN, LL, ticket counter at LAX, shooting. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a media terrorist. <laughs> and it turns out, it's, you know, it's a guy from Fox News. Uh, very odd. This is an odd moment. It's one of the oddest videos I probably shot. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely allowed. Okay. It's allowed in three ponds. It's allowed in the pond. I've never seen anybody fish here before. I videotaped that, which I find interesting and unique about the city of New York. Well, it's a good thing. Yeah, you can. You can um, go right on the... The Central Park website, and I'll okay. tell you, you can fish in the mirror. Yeah, no, I'm not challenging the fact that you can. I'm just curious. I've never seen anybody fishing. It's not very good fishing. There are largemouth bass. In this thing here? Yep. And what do you use for bait? Uh, I'm a white fly fish, so I use flies. Do you catch the flies yourself? No, flies are, I'll show you. Oh, those are the things you make. Uh, you, exactly. Yeah, 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 okay, the string. I'm stupid. I don't, I don't fly fish. Oh, okay. See, and you tie them. Yeah, yeah. And you tie your own flies? I do, yeah. You do? Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in California. Yeah, you did a lot of fly fishing out there? Not really. No? But I learned in later life, and it's a great pleasure and a great sport. It's like relaxing, right? Very. Uh, you, know, you live in New York now? No. Well, I do live here part-time, actually. Okay. Um, I can tell by your manner that you're from New York. Get the hell out of here. Is it my accent? It's everything about you, uh, I would say. <laughs> so when you videotape people, and I don't mind, right. but I bet you some people do, 
Yeah, they assault me sometimes. Is that true? Yeah. What do you do with the video? I put it up on my channel. I have a lot of people that follow me. Do you really? Yeah. That's great. I have about, kind of... about 15,000 people that follow me. Really? Yeah. That's so neat. Okay, that's pretty cool. Let's uh, see what's going on in the news here. Get a little burst from Fox. The White House. Thank you, Peter. Stocks surged today. The Dow gained 547. The S&P 500 was up 75. NASDAQ jumped 269. For the week, the Dow lost one and a quarter percentage points. The S&P 500 was down eight tenths of a point. NASDAQ gained a fraction. Tonight, we are getting our first look at the deposition of former President Trump in his defamation trial brought by a woman who accuses him of rape. Correspondent Brian Yenis shows us this evening. Hello, Brian. Shannon, good evening. In this deposition taped back in October at Mar-a-Lago, former President Trump is questioned by lawyers that represent E. Jean Carroll. She's a magazine columnist who accuses Trump of raping her at a New York City department store in the mid-1990s, a claim he flatly denies. It didn't happen. Um, and, and by the way, if it did happen, it would have been reported within minutes. It's the most ridiculous, disgusting story. It was just made up. But I know nothing about her. I think she's sick, mentally sick. We watched 47 minutes of the deposition this week. Carol is suing Trump for defamation and battery in a civil case. Trump was even questioned about the infamous Access Hollywood tape released in 2016, where he's caught in a hot mic saying, when you're a star, you can do anything. Okay. Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the... Well, that's what... It's, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been... Largely true, not always, but largely true, unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that. Trump says Carol is, quote, not my type, but when shown a photo, he mistakes Carol for his ex-wife, Marla Maples. You say Marla's in this photo? That's Marla, yeah. That's, that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. Here. Carol. Oh, the that, person oh, okay. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. Who is that? Who is this? Point, anyway. And the person, the woman on the right is your then wife, I don't Ramana? know. This was the picture. Ramana. I assume that's John Johnson. Is that Carroll? Because it's very blurry. Trump will not take the stand in his defense. Carroll's lawyers have called 11 witnesses, including two other women who accused the former president of forcibly touching them. Allegations he denies. Closing arguments begin on Monday. Shannon. Brian Yannis in New York. Thanks, Brian. We are learning new details tonight about the letter signed. Let's get back uh, to Tucker Carlson's speech from last night in Alabama. This is not a briefing, actually. This is an expression of contempt. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is, I don't care what you think. Yep. That's really what they're saying. This is a humiliation exercise designed to let you know that you have no power at all and they can tell you anything they want. That's right. There's nothing you can do about it. Yep. I think that's really bad. And I think that's setting the stage for real division. I don't think you should ever talk to people like that. I don't talk to my dogs that way. They don't. I mean, they're dogs. I'm not going to try to reason with them. <laughs> I'm not going to say, if you're eating dog food because you're a dog, 
<laughs> I would never speak to my children that way. Do you remember being nine and there was always some teacher who clearly had a super unhappy first life? Yep. And you'd be like, remember the bathroom? No. Why? Because I said so. <laughs> and at nine, you don't know what the word fascist means, obviously. But you sense there's something really wrong with it. That's not an explanation, I'm sorry. Maybe when you're nine and she's an adult and holds all the power, like that's just not enough. And you really resent that. Does anyone remember that? Maybe you went to vegetables. Yep. I remember that very well. I remember thinking this is unjust. It's dehumanizing, actually. There's something dehumanizing about it. She's not treating me as a human being. And even at nine, I'm still a human being. That's the vibe I get. Not simply from the way that's briefing, which really is almost performance art. I mean, it's really, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's like unbelievable. But from the entire federal government, and honestly, from the leaders of both parties in Congress. I hate to say that. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Amen. And I don't, you know, I'm not voting for a lot of Democrats, obviously. Um, and I don't expect to anytime soon. However, so I mean, I, I don't vote a ton, but to the extent I have voted, Congress is working on election days, but. Yeah, I was the Republican Party and everything. Okay, this is uh, E. Jean Carroll, 2019, talking about how sexy You don't feel like a victim. I was not thrown on the ground and ravished. Which, the word rape carries so many sexual connotations. This was not, this was not sexual. It just, it, it hurt. It just, what, it just, you know. But I think most people think of rape as a, I mean, it is a violent Assault. It is not. I think most people think of rape as being sexy. Mm. Let's take a short break. Think of the fantasies. Mm. We're going to take a quick break. If you can stick around, we'll talk more on the other side. You're fascinating to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's pretty good. But I don't see a huge outcry from the Republicans in Congress. I'm not talking about individual members. There are a lot of really nice ones and some really good people, actually, particularly from this region, from the South. But the leadership, I get the same vibe from them. Yep. It's yep. like, we don't care what you think, actually. What are you going to do about it? I'm sorry, you're the majority leader now? I don't think you are. <laughs> Shut up, he explained. <laughs> um, and I think that's kind of terrifying. If you look, this here's a, an interesting exercise. You often hear the word populism batted around, populism, populism. And, you know, it's hard to know exactly what that means, any of these political labels. Is that like Huey Long? Is that Hugo Chavez? Like, what is, what is that that we're talking about? And in this country at this time, what they call populism is pretty non-scary, so far as I can tell. I haven't heard anybody calling for appropriating the land of anybody. Imposing 100% tax rates on Bill Gates, though I'm open to that, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just kidding, not, not, um, that I would admit in public. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm for it, whatever. I think that's irresponsible. Um, but the populism that, you know, there are only like four populist politicians in the country, but and they're all reviled by everyone in charge, and they're so dangerous, and they're all Mussolini. So you know there'll be concentration camps. Okay, great. Uh, are they the ones who ran everyone during COVID and locked them down in their homes, kept the kids? I don't know if they are actually. Uh, but the populism that we see in this country right now is really—it's not even a demand. It's just a polite request that politicians 
sort of pretend to address the issues that people actually care about. That's really what it is. Yep. No one's calling for hurting anybody. It's just the opposite. In fact, the people who are hurting the population hate populism. But the populace at this point, this could all change, of course, because politics is fluid, and it does change, sometimes very abruptly. Um, but right now, it's just like, hey, guys, there are these problems. Can you just please, just for one second, take time out from whatever weird thing you're doing that has nothing to do with my life, and just like pay attention to me for one second? And the answer is not only no, but I think we may have to arrest you. <laughs> and so People read it and advise. And at the same time, we're arresting you because democracy. We're really supporting you. People read an advice column because they want to say, Oh my God, thank God that's not me. Longest running events, advice columnist gets 200 letters a month. It's from L. How do I land my dream job? I like to stay up late, I like to sleep late, and I like to live like 90 in between. I get up around noon, and I stagger outside out the store, and I throw open my arms, and I thank God I don't have children. Then I go back in, stagger into my office, and start reading a stack of ASCII gene letters. I never thought much went on in the morning anyway. Women have facials in the morning, they have their hair done. Not me. I like getting up at noon. My personal life is fascinating. I started writing at about the age of six and a half, fed with a daily, daily diet of Ann Landers and Dear Abby. I wanted to be Ann and Abby. Hang on, I have something that explains the ASCII gene column in a perfect, perfect thing. Here I come through here. This is what I've been doing for 25 years. I'm a cheerleader. People get down and depressed and a little confused and they need help. This is what I do. I yell and I scream and I um, help them get through their difficulties. So she competed for Miss Cheerleader the USA in 1964. I don't know anything. It's the people who've been writing to me for 25 years who taught me everything. Those are the people you can't read a stack of Eugene letters without learning more than reading Shakespeare. You want to see some old ASCII gene? All these are ASCII gene, ASCII gene, ASCII gene. I have every single letter that's ever been sent to me. I have shopping bags full of actual stationery with letters. This man has given his uh, wife a $30,000 engagement ring. He wants her to give him a $6,000 watch. Well, she did, but it wasn't enough because then he wanted a Rolex. How she's handled this is she's had an affair with somebody at the office. The questions have remained the same. They want love, they want to be a size six, they want their children to do well, they want to have a purpose in life, they want those same things. And that, that has never changed. The answer is in their question. You just find out what they want to do and then you tell them to do it. 
I am so tormented and confused by my obsession with my ex-boyfriend from college. Here's the last line. It's been 22 years since we broke up. I understand you. She and I have a lot in common. Oh, we do not want to look at our emails. <laughs> that was a bad idea. Oh. I worry so much about the people who write in. I am so real. See these eyes? Look, look at the bags under my eyes. I worry at night when I'm in bed because, you know, a line from me can change their life. Now, whether it changes for the better or for the worse, I don't know. As you see, I have stacks of L's here and there and everywhere. I get sent one every month. Sometimes, if I'm very good, they send me two. I could not answer the questions coming into the ASCII gene column if I was in New York City. You can't think in New York if you're dating 16 people, which I would be doing if I were in New York. You go to the woods to find out who you are, and then you find out who you are, and you're even happier than when you came. It's wonderful. I'm going to get in trouble. He lives in the kitchen. Taberski lives in the bedroom. This is my shed. And on that side are the books that most influenced me growing up. On the door are the list of my dogs. Marky, Fortuna de la Spunky, Heidi, Tits, Bloody, and Hepburn. The streams and the rivers were dry, and I, it so horrified me that I came out and started painting the rocks blue to indicate that there was once a river here. And then after I got done painting the rocks, I just sort of walked over here and then did that tree, and then did that tree, and then I did this tree. And then pretty soon I'd done this whole forest. All right, seems like a nice lady. Oh my God! What's the best piece of advice I've ever given? What a horrible question to ask an advice column. Oh my God! Hang on. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's it. That's my advice. Okay, let's get back to Tucker. Last night. That freaks me out every time I say that. Because of course it's exactly the opposite. Therefore, democracy, they would, they would perform a very simple exercise, which I just do occasionally to amuse myself. And that's just get public opinion polling, pick your polling firm, aggregate all of them together, doesn't matter. Polling done every day by a bunch of different company, companies on what Americans care about. And it's very straightforward. This is not sophisticated stuff at all. It's like, hey, Mr. and Mrs. America, what do you care about? Just put your concerns in order. And they're always kind of the same. The economy, always number one. Crime, immigration. Those are the top three. And then compare those concerns to the concerns of the people leading the country. Are those their top three? Are they in the top 50? <laughs> in fact, not only they're not on the list, the opposites are on the list. It's like, I'm worried about the economy. Okay, we're going to print some more money and increase your inflation and just totally devalue US dollars like we're impoverished and then we're going to take control of it through digital currency. Is that what you're saying you want? Oh, it's the opposite? Okay, we're going to give you a, a double helping of what you don't want. <laughs> oh, you think the country's changing so fast you don't recognize it and maybe like you didn't sign up for that? Oh, we're going to let in 7 million people without asking your permission illegally and they're just going to live 
what we're seeing is if your kids came down to him with Oreos on his face, you said, did you eat the Oreos? And he goes, no, you did. <laughs> right? Right. That is not a good sign. And then sort of smiled faintly, like the one else the No, you ain't. <laughs> that's freaky. That's not that's yep. not normal human behavior at all. No. And, and by the way, most people can't do that. That's the other thing. That's amazing. And I, I covered cops for a while as a reporter. I covered police. I was on the police. You know, covered a lot of cops. And because of my interest in the subject, I talked to polygraphers, people who administer lie detector tests. Yeah about lying. And if you talk to anybody who does this for a living, and cops are the best because that's, the, you know, they're the front line on lying. You know, they don't, they're not the judge, but they're the person who first makes the determination, is this human being I've apprehended guilty of something? And they're very good at detecting it. If you ask them, like, what percentage of the population can just infer it, just make up something completely false when it's obviously true? Let's say, like, very few people very few people can beat a lie detector test. You'd have to be a true psycho to do that. Mm. You'd have to have some sort of incredibly dark conscience or lack of a conscience. You'd have to be a sociopath to do that. Yep. And yet I see that everywhere. Yep. And I think the costs of this are much higher than we imagine. I think if you keep doing stuff like that, if you keep making everybody paranoid and crazy, undermine their belief in the core systems. And the core systems, of course, are the democratic process. Does your vote count? Do elections mean anything? Do they correlate at all with the kind of government you get? Does the government even listen to you? Does the government care about you? Is the government trying to hurt you? There's evidence that that's true. There is. I can't answer that. I don't know. It kind of seems like they are. You close the gym during COVID? Ah, what's it? Did you keep the strip clubs open? What's this? Tell me how that works. I'm serious. Not even attacking strip clubs, but like, you can't have a gym, but you can't have an abortion club. Really? Is that a sign of love? Do you really love me? You know, he could say he loves you, but if he's treating you like that, he doesn't love you. That's just true. The cost of that over time is just absolutely profound. It's profound. And you could wind up in a place you do not want to be. And don't think this is small time stuff, I think it's big time stuff. So what can you do about it? And I'll end with this because I, oh, I talk too much. No. no. Come on. You can do two, you can do two things. No, you can do two, I, sorry, there's a reason I think you want to talk to your host. Just, <laughs> well, you don't want to sit next to me on an airplane. And another thing! Want <laughs> <laughs> to see pictures of my dogs? He's got a very, she's such a wonderful person, but she's, she's never criticized me, but she did say in a very gentle way once, I don't
first thing is to seek truth. Amen. And seek truth in your human relationships, always with humility, mindful that it's pretty hard to get to the core truth of anything in this life. It just is. Through a last hour, like that's real. You can't really know what's going on, and I think we should accept that and accept the limits of our own knowing, our own intellect, and our own perceptions. They're sometimes wrong. I've supported things that turned out to be completely insane. People have supported that. What happened to me? I don't know. You know that, that, that happens. So going into it with humility, that, no, I don't have all the answers. That's a prerequisite for wisdom. Knowing how ridiculous you are, as my father always used to say, is a prerequisite for wisdom. If you don't know that you're ridiculous, you're extra ridiculous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So approaching it with humility, no, I'm not exactly sure what the truth of anything is. But I know that truth exists. It, it, it's not just a theory, it's a reality. Some things are true, some things are false. And while we may never get to what is the deepest level of truth, we, we can move in that direction, and we can begin by telling the truth ourselves. You know, that's kind of what we can control is what we do. And, you know, they can impose lies on us. It doesn't mean we have to live them. You don't have to live a lie. You can be honest. It doesn't mean you need to be louder on some stupid cable news show. Yeah, I'm always mad. <laughs> but it does mean in your personal conduct and your relationships with others, telling the truth, sometimes very softly, sometimes simply refusing to lie. You know, they're... they're I would always tell my kids, you don't have to say everything that's true. <laughs> Sometimes maybe you shouldn't. You need to, as my co-host James Carver once said to me in a very, I thought, helpful way, he said, you know, I think it's important to appreciate the beauty of the unexpressed thought. <laughs> <laughs> and as I've aged, I've come to appreciate that one. <laughs> but not saying something, you know, while it's not the most courageous stand you could take, sometimes it's the right thing to do. But it's very different from participating in a lie. You know, they want you to lie. They not simply want to lie to you, they want to implicate you in the lie. They want you to repeat their catechism. They want you to agree that two plus two equals five. It's so important to them. That's ultimately what they want. Why do they want that? Because if you can get someone to say something he knows isn't true, you control them. Yep. Not just his body. You can control my body, and it's not hard. Don't shoot me. Okay, wow, no problem. You shot me. Okay, well, it takes a lot of talent. It doesn't. That's a blunt instrument. But to control someone's brain mm. and get him to say, you know, I really need to wear a mask inside my car alone to protect myself from that. <laughs> it's very important. Come on. <laughs> then you've won. You've won. You don't need to monitor or control that person because you control him from afar because you control his brain. You've defeated him. He's no longer a man, actually. He's a slave. That's true. That's right. And the enslavement of people, taking away their choice and in so doing their dignity, really their humanity, that is the goal, obviously. It's like this massive game of Simon Says. Stand on one foot, hop around, and quack like a duck. Dr. Fauci commands, Okay! Okay! I love you, Dr. Fauci! <laughs> okay, get on all fours and oink like a pig. 
It's very important to science. The man's like, okay. <laughs> At that point, I don't need guns to control you. I just snap my fingers. I just snap my fingers. And you're like on the ground trying to be like a porcupine. How do you make a porcupine? <laughs> Not participating in that is essential, both for spiritual reasons that will corrupt you, allowing yourself to repeat something that you know in your heart is not true it will corrupt you. Amen. 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 I actually think everything's at stake, and I mean that, I don't want to beat up on couch or whatever. He's himself a pathetic tool of... Satan. Powers larger than himself, but... And so I don't, I don't want to single out one guy, because it's not just one guy, actually. There's like a lot going on here that I don't fully understand. I'm just watching, right, from the sidelines. But um, you don't want to participate in that in any way. Right. Because it robs you of the only thing that matters, which is your humanity, your God-given humanity. And it makes you something less than human. Yep. And it corrupts you as surely as fentanyl or hookers. And maybe worse. And I mean it. Yep, yep. It's one thing to... To you know, to file your body. It's nothing to hand over your soul to people with malintent. Don't ever do that. Right. Ever. So, um, being honest in your personal life and seeking out information that you believe to be true, actually true, not just information that you know inflames your passions, but that speaks to you as a human being. It doesn't patronize you or feed you slogans or repeat stupid bumper stickers or whatever, but actually tries to engage you as an adult with reason. Do you know what I mean? Like finding information um, that's real, but that seems real, as best you can ascertain, is really, really important. And there are so few places to find it, but they exist because the internet's a big place. And it's, I would not be intimidated in searching that out. And you'll notice that the gatekeepers, the people who have the media monopolies, and it's a smaller number every year, they say it's Google, Facebook, and a few others, NBC News. Um, well, really, there aren't that many media companies. You know, when I worked at the newspaper in Little Rock, Arkansas, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, the statewide daily, the United States, um, that was a big deal to work at that paper. And it was a completely invented voice. It was owned by a family, wonderful people, the husbands, and that was real. It was a real paper. People read it. You know, it had some squat in the state. They represented Arkansas. We covered Arkansas. If you live in Arkansas, you probably want to read it. That's all gone now. And it's a relatively small number of companies that control almost, almost all of the information. Mm. You notice that their incentive, both for commercial and other reasons, is to dissuade you from ever looking elsewhere for information. Oh, that's conspiracy stuff. You're a conspiracy. You're a crazy person. Probably a QAnon. Call the DOJ. <laughs> Don't let them intimidate you. I mean, of course, there's tons of wacko stuff on the internet. A lot of it's right at CNN.com, you know? <laughs> but don't let them make you feel like you're a bad person because you want a second source. If you went to the doctor, and he's like, unfortunately, you have inoperable pancreatic cancer. And you're like, wow, it's kind of a heavy, you know, kind of a heavy diagnosis. Maybe I don't want to just get a second opinion just because, like, what? What are you, a freak? You want to get a second opinion? Get out of here, weirdo! I'm calling the cops! What's wrong with what's wrong with asking another doctor to confirm your shut up? That would not instill faith in that doctor, would it? 
Tell me this guy can't be president of the United States. I mean, he is such a gifted communicator. People love this man. Like ever, you know, not private equity, like I pay full load, like most people here, like whatever the rate is, it's pretty high, it's like the majority of the income, I think. And that's fine, I'm not mad about it. But, a little mad, not that bad, honestly. <laughs> I would be willing to pay more. You can tackle an extra 10% if you would just stop lecturing me. Amen. Just for a second. You get on a commercial airliner, first you walk down the jet bridge and all the propaganda posters on the, you know, on the, on the jet bridge? There's not a single poster that's not ramming some political ideology down your throat. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> then you get on the plane and they're like trying to sell you some stupid credit card. And really to buy an American Airlines credit card? You don't even take off on time. I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> They throw in some, some other thing, like their commitment to this or that. What? Just fly the plane. I'm stuck right. in this aluminum tube and you're lecturing me? Are you joking? You don't serve meals anymore. You don't serve peanuts anymore. <laughs> you're giving me a moral lecture? Like, who puts you in the pulpit? Amen. Gosh, fly the plane. Then the federal government's just like a never-ending lecture. Like, oh, well, you know, you just did it. We're a little disappointed in you. But you're my dad. For all its sort of downsides like concentration camps and starvation, they don't do that in North Korea. I don't think they feel the need to like lecture you. There's something very dehumanizing about being lectured. Very dehumanizing. I never even lectured my kids when they were little. They can just don't know how to spend you now. I don't bore you with some lecture about how you're like evil or something. You remember what you can expect? Don't do it again. Okay, push me forward, right? being like, well, I'm very disappointed in you. Your mother and I had very high hopes for you, but you've dashed them. You'll never live up to our moral standards. You're disgusting. <laughs> you know, I'm not virtuous enough to lecture people like that. Just being honest. No. I'm not a good enough person to give that lecture. To anyone. Including my children. Or my dogs. You choose the pillow. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> Slap on the bucket, get out of here. And so the idea that like the worst people in the world, like the Apple Corporation or some private equity guys, like, oh, I'm really disappointed, you're racist. What? Are you joking? It's not enough to do like run some CD business that's not making America better at all. You have to lecture me too? That's like not part of the deal. 
So I think it's important to just keep your wits about you and realize you're not the bad person in this scenario. This really is like some super twisted alcoholic relationship where your spouse comes home drunk and hits you and then you feel guilty because you didn't have dinner right or something? No. No. That's codependence. Yeah. And the second answer to all of this, and I will stop on this, you know, as a promise of promises. <laughs> um, the second answer is, you know, to think about how you make it better. And I think about that a lot just because I was born in this country and I have a big family and I really love this country, its people and its landscape. You said, well, we, we love about America. Well, I like the people. And I do. Stop at a gas station. Most people are really nice, actually. And it's the prettiest country I've been to all over the world. Many, many, many countries. Dozens of scores of countries. And this is the prettiest by far. It's unbelievable. I saw it today in your stage. Again, I just want to say I mean it. I really think it's beautiful. So, you know, I'm not some hyper-patriot former Navy SEAL or anything, but I'm like a sincere lover of the country, and I want it to get better. And like, how do you, in how do all of us, in our small incremental ways, Make it better. Well, Tucker for president. Woo! Run for president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you run for president, they will assassinate your character. I'm just guessing. <laughs> anyway, uh, how do you make it better? It's <laughs> Don't get me going, man. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. I can't even see you, I didn't mean to call you that, but it was, it was good luck. <laughs> so, how do we make it better? And I do think it's important to be politically engaged, I guess. I don't really think that, but I think you're required to say that now. Um, if you believe in democracy. Uh, no, of course, it's important to vote your conscience. You know, I decided many years ago, my wife and I decided, you know, we're pro-life, and, and that's just kind of our, you know, everyone gets to shoot And, but there are others who are doing that, and you can do that too. I mean, that's a very kind of big 
an impressive operation. But I have a, this is, I can't even tell you this, but I just love this. I have this friend, um, one of my co-worker college roommates, who's just a wonderful person and very, very good at business, and who's gotten super rich in a way that I'm like, wow, you're super rich. And you're drunk all the time, you're rich. Uh, <laughs> and the answer is, that's oh, true. And the answer is he's just really smart and super hardworking and he's not drinking and all that. So, um, but he's enormously thoughtful. He's a very thoughtful, decent person who cares about his family above all. And the kind of, exactly the kind of person you want to see become successful. And when we were talking, we sent our children to the same school at one point, and I said, you know, I think this word is compelling to a word before we, we fled in terror. And um, we said at this school school, and so it went kind of completely crazy, like truly crazy. What? Just like, Devil worship in school, and I was like, wow, this is really dark. And we've always felt kids go to school, you should give money to the school. And he said, you know, I'm out. They don't share my values, and I'm not doing that. And I said, and he's a big charity guy, he's a tither. And 10% of his income is a lot. And I said, well, what are you going to do with the money? He said, I'm going to give it to waiters. Wow. Waiters? He's a guy. And he's good at math. He's like, I give whatever. Now, I give 100 bucks a year to charity, let's say, many zeros in that. And, uh, and then I write it off. But is it, I don't really need to write it off. I mean, am I giving money to write it off? Is that the point of charity to get a tax break? No. And I'm going to give it to waiters. I'm going to give the whole thing to waiters. Wow. I need out, you know, whatever, 112 times a year. I kind of figured it out. I got my calendar out. And I'm going to divide that amount by 112. And I'm going to give each waiter like $8,000. And that's what I'm going to do. Whoa! I was like, for real? He's like, yeah. Because. I want to help a person. And if you give that to an institution, and there are some institutions that deserve it, like the one on whose behalf I'm speaking tonight, but if this institution doesn't share your values and you're just reflexively giving it, then you're not helping, actually. If you give to Ray Bobega, you can like drive out there and see like how are the beneficiaries of this doing? We'll meet them on the road and their faces are... Okay, that's uh, Tucker Carlson's speech from last night is the, the Washington uh, Post is reporting that Tucker Carlson has been in talks with Donald Trump apparently Carlson is considering having some sort of Republican primary forum outside of the Republican National Committee uh, in order to you know have the Republican candidates duke it out now Trump is interested in this and here's what the Washington Post reports Carlson wants to moderate his own GOP candidate forum outside of the usual uh, strictures or structures of the Republican National Committee debate system the idea which he has discussed with other uh, with Donald Trump uh, the front runner for now uh, for the party uh, would test his vaunted sway over conservative politics it's worth noting again for the billionth time that Internally, privately, Tucker Carlson has thought of and refers to Donald Trump as a demonic force. So uh, now that he's out at Fox, he's been fired. I'm just really curious to see where he's headed to next. But I want to be clear, I actually think the idea of doing these types of debates or these forums outside of the context of the establishment could actually be really good because I think there's too much power concentrated in the establishment. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, so, look, the Republicans have a better chance, if we're being honest, than the Democrats of breaking uh, any kind of power structure. Because the Democratic Party would never allow you to have a debate outside of the DNC parameters. And if you did, they'd want to banish not only the media organization that did it, 
but the candidates and punish them by not allowing them to be in the other debates, etc. But then when you ask for a debate, they say, no, Biden, uh, it's, it's not permitted to debate Biden because obviously Biden could get humiliated in a debate. So they just, they're not going to allow it at all. And there's very, I mean, look, I want to break that blockade. And we're going to try super hard to break that blockade later. But to be fair to the Republicans, Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson break those kind of bad rules all the time. They also break good rules and good laws. But but when it comes to a nonsensical rule, like, oh, it has to be done through the GOP and in the way exactly the ways that the establishment demand, no, that's Trump as an outsider candidate, even though he was president of the United States, he, the establishment is not in, on on his side. He's like, no, so what? I'm going to break through. What are you going to do now? And he's got a giant lead in the Republican primary, 20, 30 points, right? So, okay, you don't want to show up to that debate, then it'll be Trump and Tucker doing a giant ad for Donald Trump. So I can't stand either one of them, but I like this development. I like this development, too, because it is important, in my opinion, to weaken the current power structures that basically control everything, right? When you think about what the DNC, so let's think about it in the context of our side of the aisle. The DNC refusing, at least for now, to hold a single Democratic primary debate, that's them putting their thumb on the scale. That's them intentionally suppressing uh, anyone in the Democratic voting base from knowing about Marianne Williamson or any other candidate who might want to primary Joe Biden. This is their way of ensuring that their preferred candidate, uh, of course, the incumbent in this case, is propped up. Okay, you're probably wondering, what does uh, Judaism have to say about God? This is Professor Mark Shapiro. Um, let us start talking about dogma uh, in the history of Jewish ideas. Before we do, um, I wonder if we can agree on something like a working definition. When we talk about dogma, uh, specifically within this religious context, what is it that we mean? Well, primarily, dogmas uh, are ideas that uh, you're obligated to believe. Uh, for the medievals, the Rambam in particular, and others, uh, lack of belief in dogma would uh, render you a heretic, even without a share in the world to come. So it's, I guess you can call it salvific in that uh, belief, the dogma determines salvation, if we want to use that uh, perhaps Christian term. It's an obligatory belief. You know, let me add, it's an obligatory belief, and not just for the community, to be a member of the community. It's an obligatory belief in determining the fate of your eternal soul in the afterlife. That's how they understood it. I see. Um, in which case, let's jump back to as early as we can possibly go, because this is a question that I'm very curious about, which is, where can we identify the very first instance of dogma within the canon of Jewish texts? In other words, uh, let's take a look at the biblical text, for instance. Can one from there see instances of dogmatic statements that is very clear that Jews have to believe? Um, or is this somewhat anachronistic and doesn't fit in to the category that we're talking about today? Well, I don't know if it fits in exactly, uh, because as we'll talk about maybe later, the whole idea of dogma really arises in a certain uh, context, really, in the Islamic world. But the notion that uh, certain beliefs were accepted, that uh, that without them there's no religion, I think uh, that goes back as far as the religion. I mean, I am the Lord your God, uh, although uh, most assume it's not a commandment uh, in the Ten Commandments, but it's obviously the basis of everything else. Uh, so that, and then if uh, you look in the Gemara, you have uh, discussions, uh, not in detail, but for example, in uh, the Mishnah in Sanhedrin, it mentions uh, certain things that uh, if you don't believe in it, you're a heretic. So uh, clearly, uh, implicit, there are this assumption that you must believe certain things to be part of the community. I'm not sure whether there's this notion that uh, you won't have a share in the world to come in the Torah or in the... So in, in practice, all right, in, in practice, in Orthodox Judaism, you're not going to get quizzed about what you believe, all right? Uh, e even when you go through an Orthodox Jewish conversion, uh, it's very likely that you won't be asked very much about what you believe. Overwhelmingly, the focus in... Judaism is on what you do, how you practice, rather than what you believe. Yeah, but uh, certainly there are um, beliefs implicit, and by the time you get to the Talmudic period, we see the beginnings of uh, dogmatic formulations, uh, if only in the negative sense. Don't, the one who denies this is out of the fold. Maimonides is going to be significant, is that he adds a positive element as well. Right. 
Okay, we'll get to Maimonides soon. Um, I want to press you slightly on, on what you said here with regards to Tanakh. Um, is that so? You have certain seemingly dogmatic statements like "I'm the Lord your God" or "Shema Israel." So Tanakh refers to the Hebrew Bible. Well, Christians call it the Old Testament. Right, uh, the, the God is one, let's say. Um, and these do seem to be basic foundational beliefs. But are they foundational beliefs logically? In other words, all other Jewish belief and practice stem from them, and therefore one has to believe them, otherwise the rest of the system doesn't make sense. Or, or is it something closer to dogma in that those beliefs are necessary even without the rest of it, even just separate from everything else? These are intellectual propositions that you have to accept. Well, it's from the latter, because uh, the, the Bible recognizes that uh, uh, people are complicated and uh, not everyone follows everything, and uh, there's a striving to be better. But uh, what stands, I guess, at the base of it is, uh, I am the Lord your God, and then follows everything else, uh, Shema Yisrael. So I think even from the beginning, and this Shema is a, a novel Israel. position, uh, Salman Schechter uh, deals with this, uh, he makes the point that religion has to have dogma. Even Mendelssohn is often uh, associated with this idea of dogma, dogma, the dogma of dogmalessness. The fact is that he also acknowledges that there is dogma in a uh, much more limited sense, uh, without which the religion would be unimaginable. Okay, so Moses Mendelssohn lived and uh, wrote in the 18th century. He was a leader of the, the Jewish Enlightenment, and he presented Judaism very much as a universalist faith, but uh, he agreed that everyone should turn their back on idolatry. Now, it's not just religions that have dogma. Individuals have dogma. Workplaces have dogma. Communities have dogma. Uh, your stamp club might have dogma, right? So if you're going to be effective and happy in life, you don't want to go around smashing people's dogmas, all right? If you want to get along with an individual or a group or a workplace, then pay attention to what the dogmas are and at least hold yourself back from smashing them if you want to be happy and effective. Teaching and the rabbinic teaching that God is a physical form, but the most perfect physical form as can be imagined, but a physical form nonetheless. Yeah, Shadal's relationship to the Rambam is a very it's an interesting topic. Perhaps we'll, perhaps we'll have another uh, episode just on Shadal or something like that because that's, um, that's something fascinating. Uh, and just on your comment about Rabbi Nachman of Breslev and, and 2 plus 2 equaling 5, perhaps because for Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, 2 plus 2 did equal 5 um, in some fashion. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll leave that for the time being. Um, I'll just ask a sort of a historical question, uh, which is that why has Maimonides' list of 13 be so, have, ha, why has it been so extraordinarily successful? Oops, I think this wrong. might go back, uh, this might be a dispute seven. that goes back to Talmudic times, how to understand not that God exists as a physical being, but that God can assume a physical form if he wishes which one could perhaps argue would be included in his uh, omnipotence and his ability to do anything. Yeah, you could turn uh, it on the Rambam and say... So, yeah, big difference between Christianity and Judaism is that Judaism holds that God cannot assume physical form. That is the majority position in Judaism. Well, of course, in Christianity, God does assume human form in Jesus. Rambam, where do you get off saying that God cannot assume a physical form? You're removing his ability. Rav Nathan Abraslav says that uh, God can make 2 plus 2 equal 5. The Rambam says that God can't do the impossible, and Rav Nachman says, who says he can't do the impossible? He's God. Uh, so, but for the Rambam, this is, uh, this is an impossibility. And with uh, the idea of the human God from the Christian world, it becomes an impossibility for Jews all over, the idea that God can assume a human form, but uh, uh, any physical form. But I think, if you, I think if you look at the Rishonin and Ashkenaz, the reason that Jesus can't be God is not the philosophical reasons given by... Um, um, you know, the reason Christianity is Avodah Zarah is not the philosophical reasons given by the rationalists, that God is one, can't be divided into three parts, all these things. It's simply because they worship a man. And, uh, you know, they weren't, the, the, the philosophical uh, problem with corporeality isn't what uh, troubled those in medieval Ashkenaz. Uh. Presumably not, especially if the regnant religion at the time did, in fact, propose something like that. Well, it's hard. I mean, look, we have the Raiva. The Raiva's saying, So the Raiva's telling us that we had, uh, I mean, he knew the Rambam was great, and he's telling us that there were great figures in Ashkenaz who had corporeal conceptions of God. Uh, so corporeal means takes physical form. So generally speaking, that's not the, the dumb thing in Judaism.
Right, let's get a little Peter Zion here. Now, the United States is a country that, while it is firmly bilingual, the population as a whole is not particularly multilingual. So, you know, you go to the Netherlands and your, your random shopkeeper is going to speak like six languages fluently and then, you know, be able to command a half a dozen more. Uh, most Americans are likely, like me, if they can spell in English. And uh, the truly fortunate among us are bilingual with Spanish. And that's about it. And that makes it a very small pool of people to draw from if you want to do large-scale intelligence operations that have a human element to it. Uh, and so all of our intelligence programs include some very, very, very intensive language training because not just not a lot of people come into the space with that, uh, especially when you consider that uh, one of the big pools for intelligence personnel are former military personnel. And if you're working for four or eight, you know, two, three, whatever tours, uh, language competency in a foreign language isn't necessarily that common, or maybe you have one. And since American foreign policy changes every few years based on who the rivalry of the moment happens to be, you know, we're always having to recreate that language, uh, that language competency, which means that when it comes to human, we're not that great. In addition, the United States is a very rich country, and convincing someone to go abroad and basically work in a danger zone uh, for danger pay is a bit of a stretch, whereas if you're in a poorer country or a country that has a lot more geopolitical stress right in its immediate environment, it's an easier sell to the population. So small pool, expensive pool, and that pool still requires extensive training. So the United States just doesn't excel at human intelligence. Human. What we do excel, however, is SIGINT, or signals intelligence. So he talks in this video about how U.S. foreign policy changes every four years, but that's not true, all right? There's virtually no difference between Republicans and Democrats on foreign policy. And, and explain that. What, what does realism mean in political science terms? Realism is a theory that basically says that what states are principally concerned about is the balance of power. Uh, and here we're talking mainly about great powers. And great powers care greatly about how powerful they are relative to other great powers because they worry about their survival. If you're weak in the international system, other great powers or great powers in general will take advantage of you. Just consider the Chinese. They have this period from the late 1840s to the late 1940s that they refer to as the century of national humiliation. Now, the question you want to ask yourself is why were the Chinese humiliated? They were humiliated for one very simple reason. They were weak and therefore the European great powers, the United States and Japan took advantage of them. Another example that highlights this the Russians, after the Soviet Union fell apart, were adamantly opposed to NATO expansion. They made it very clear from the beginning that NATO expansion was a threat to Russia. Nevertheless, the United States pushed forward NATO expansion in 1999. That was the first tranche. Right. 2004, that was the second tranche. And then in 2008, NATO said that Ukraine and Georgia would become part of NATO. Yep. What was going on here? What was going on was that Russia was very weak. And because Russia was weak and the United States was very powerful, the United States felt it could shove NATO expansion down the Russians' throat. That's what happens to you when you're weak in international politics. So what you want to do is be very powerful. Yeah. You want to be more powerful than all your rivals, simply because that is the best way to survive. So that's the first point I'd make about realism. The second point is that realism does not discriminate between democracies and non-democracies mm. or liberal states and fascist states or communist states. Realism treats all states as black boxes. Right. All states want to maximize their relative power, regardless of the political order on the home front. That argument is one that drives most people in the West crazy. They don't like that argument because they think that the democracies are the good guys and the authoritarian states or the communist states or whatever are the bad guys. Whereas realism says there are no good guys and bad guys. They're just states competing for power because they care about their survival. So I think in a nutshell, that's a pretty good description of what realism is all about. Why, why is it that a lot of what we're seeing seems unrealistic by way of your definition of realism? Right. And you've, you've alluded to the fact that, you know, there's this dichotomy between, you know, the old paradigm of balance of power and the new paradigm of balance of power. The Chinese way would be that of 19th century. The U.S. way would be that of the 21st century. It, it seems to just appear more and more unrealistic by way of certain countries 
pushing for just democratic principles as opposed to pushing for certain things irrespective of whether or not it's an autocracy or a democracy. Well, let's just talk about American foreign policy yeah. with regard to your question. It's important to discriminate between situations where the United States is really pushing for democracy and not behaving according to balance of power politics right. versus situations where the United States is acting in a very realist fashion, but disguising its behavior with liberal rhetoric. Right. Okay. Now, during the unipolar moment, which runs from roughly 1990, maybe 1991, right. up until about 2017, 17. the United States, in my opinion, did not act in a realist fashion. It acted in a liberal fashion, and it pursued a foreign policy that I would describe as liberal hegemony. Now, why did the United States pursue this liberal policy during the unipolar moment? It's because the United States was the only great power on the planet. It was the sole pole. Therefore, great power politics did not matter to the United States because there were no other great powers in the system. So the United States, in a very important way, was free to pursue a liberal foreign policy. Right. And just take China, for example. We pursued a policy of engagement towards China. Our basic view was that we should help China get rich. We should integrate China into international institutions like the WTO, and then it would become a responsible stakeholder. And as it became a responsible stakeholder and it got richer and richer, it would become a liberal democracy, just like the Asian tigers did a few decades before. And once China was a liberal democracy, it would live happily ever after with its neighbors, and with the United States, because the system would be comprised of good guys, because liberal democracies are good guys. Right. And th this is nonsense, because even good guys try to survive. And the best way to survive is to maximize your relative power. So you're probably wondering what's going on with uh, Dennis and Julie, meaning Dennis Prager and Julie Hartman from their episode released May 1st. Saying about hearing a, a voice. Oh, the voices. We don't realize it, how powerful it is as an emotional go-getter or what, developer, increaser, whatever term you would use, it really hits the emotions of the voice. Yeah. That's the person. More than a picture. You know, at the risk of sounding maudlin, um, I, I've been thinking a lot lately, even before Otto died, how much people my age don't think about death. And actually, I feel like we would be better off if we thought about it more. Of course, it's not something that you should obsess over because you don't want obsession over death to impede you from living. But at my... So Otto is Dennis Prager's English bulldog who recently departed and was cremated. Age, you think you're going to live forever. When I go to a funeral, thankfully I haven't been to many, but when I go to a funeral, it doesn't occur to me that one day I'll have one. Whereas I, I would surmise at your age, it, it does occur to you. Uh, it's fascinating to watch one's transformation in that regard and how we So yeah, Dennis is 74, Julie is 23. ...it is when you're young, but there's no way around it. Right. You... you I mean, it's a cliche. Kids think they're immortal. That, that's, that's entirely accurate. However, you, you're, I want to react to your first point. I did think about the fact that I will die at a very early age. I know you do. I just assume it. And I, it's a big factor in my life because I said, what do I want to look back on when I'm 75? Just an arbitrary age of old. And what do I want my life to be like? That was one of the reasons I knew I wanted a wife and children. I, I, I didn't want to look at that age at that's it it's me mm -hmm. and a lot of people have called my show especially women and said they they bought the feminist line that career is everything and now they're retired so you don't retire from life but you do retire from your career you don't retire from family but you do retire from career
I have a very close friend who you have met. You've met so many of my close friends, and you've met this one, who recently wrote a birthday toast that she would want someone to give her at age 80 on her 80th birthday. That's nice. It is sort of nice. It was sort of a similar reaction, I'll admit, to the guy No, at there, the there's no comparison. Fair enough. But I was sort, there was a little part of me that was like, is this right. weird? Is, okay, I don't know. Yeah. But, but that – but. Uh, Anyway, I think it's good to get in the exercise to your point of thinking when you're older, you know, how do you want to look back on your life? Honestly, my thinking about my death was one of the biggest things that impelled me to get off of Instagram. Now, of course, you guys know on this show and on my show Timeless, I always publicize my public Instagram, which is at Julie R. Hartman. Um, and it's, at Julie R. Hartman? Yes. Oh, yes. was Julie Hartman taken? Yes. Interesting. Quiz. What is my middle name? I'll get, I'll, you'll get this. Convert in the Bible. Ruth. Yes. Uh. Someone thought the R. Someone wrote into me and said, is the R for Republican? I'm like, no. Oh, that's adorable. That <laughs> no, is really, really adorable. Not. But so it's, I'll be honest with, with you, of course, and, and with the viewers that if I had it my way, I would not have any Instagram. But being in the line of work that we're in, we have to have a social media right, in order to reach people. Right. It, like, it's just the game that you have to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I want to get my ideas out to as many people as possible. I want to get the show out to as many people as possible. So I'll do it for that sake. But So that's my professional or sort of ideas Instagram, if you will. I had a personal social media account. And thinking about my death is what got me to delete it. Because I think that it is a awful thing. I, I really do. As I've gotten older. Wait, so why are you thinking of your death prompt? This? Because. You're wasting time? Yes, because we spend so much time scrolling. And honestly, I view... I view getting off of Instagram at my age as making equivalent of investing really early in Apple stock mm-hmm. or pulling out of a bad investment. Because I think that people that are are thinking in the short term now and they're young and they're spending all their time on social media, they're going to wake up one day. I don't know if it's when they're 40 or when they're 60. I don't know. But I, I am certain of this. There is going to come a day when people my age are going to are going to wake up and realize that they wasted so much of their lives online. And even though it's tempting for me to stay on it because it's addicting and uh, you know all of my peers are on it, I'm thinking I'm, – I'm trying to exercise discipline and think about my older self and realize that I will be so glad that I made that investment or I guess in another way, pulled out of that bad investment. Any young person who thinks, how do I want my life to develop when I'm old, is ahead of the game. Yeah. That, that's, that is exactly right. Anyway, those were the reflections on, on death and, well, we haven't reflected on death. Maybe we'll do that another time. We sort of have. Yeah, right. Well, prompted by autos, obviously. Do you know how PragerU is going to talk about, or is, I'm sure they're going to make an announcement, because when Otto died, I just thought about all of the kids who watch Otto's Tales. No, and who, I know. I know. You know Otto's have, a they, huge part of PragerU's well, branding. I'm, I'm mentioning it, uh, of course, on my fireside chat, because the empty bed next to me. Oh, yeah. And uh, they are preparing a statement. I, wish, I hope they put it out sooner than later. I agree with you. But I announced it on my radio show. It's an amazing thing. The guy who came, you know, by the way, this is a strange point to make on this subject but nevertheless i'll make it so a guy comes to pick up auto for cremation so first of all not first of all so the thing that i marveled at is that there is such a service i was just about to say and i bit my tongue because i didn't want it to come off as judgmental can, can you believe there is such a job can you imagine having oh well that I'll, job? T- I'll talk to you about that man in a moment but the fact that it exists what was it something like something like pathway to heaven some some sweet name and and they come with a gurney and they put the the, the animal on it and they slide the animal into the, into the trunk of the van and then they drive away. You get an urn and we did some paw prints. But I was it was an ode to capitalism that there exists a business on a Sunday. Yeah. That for a certain fee, obviously deserved, they will pick up your animal and give him a dignified cremation, and then bring you the urn. It, it, that's that's what capitalism is. What do people want to spend their money on? That is another way of saying capitalism. And and let's say there weren't such a service. What would we do? You're right. It's a great point. What, burn, burn him ourselves? It, it's a farce. It, it, It'd be awful. It, awful. <laughs> exactly. Now, the guy who did it was an older guy, and he saw Sue and you know, well, most of us weeping. And I was thinking, this guy's got a very sad job. Yeah. But I said to Sue, he's like an undertaker for dogs. Or cats, I assume. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. 
and all he sees is sad people because the, the animal just died when he comes to pick them up for cremation. And he spoke about how when we started talking to him, because he, he's quiet until you talk, it turns out his German shepherd when he was a child, when he was 11 months old, saved his life. Wow. He ran into the street, cars were coming, and the dog grabbed him back. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, German shepherds are bright. By the way, there is a list of intelligence in dogs, a list. One, mm-hmm. I think it's one through 80. Guess what English bulldogs are? 79. 77. Oh. <laughs> so here's an interesting theory. Otto was probably 76. higher than average. Yeah. This I don't look to dogs for for intelligence. That's good. Probably good thing. Yeah, no, well, I don't understand it. Why, what is the advantage of a bright dog? The odds are they'll be more neurotic because they are bright. They perceive more. I just want a happy-go-lucky animal. I don't need his views on Russia and Ukraine, right? <laughs> Sean, is, does Fergus give you his views on Russia? But wait, don't you want, don't you want a dog who can save your life? I mean, this was a dog. All right, it took a smart dog to to save this man's life. So IQ is important, right? It's like it's important with people. It's important with animals. Hey, why would you not want a, a smart dog that can save your life? Okay, so Dennis Prager talks on the show about how he doesn't like to discuss his age. And I don't have my timestamps lined up. letting you down your i don't know if i should say their name but with our dear friends from the from shabbat dinner they were so nice to include me their seder and dennis was there and there was someone there who talked about the holocaust and how her father uh, or i guess it was her grandfather died in the holocaust and she was saying i so regret that you know he wasn't able to know my kids and and i was just sitting there and i was so moved by it and then you piped up and said i want the because i was at the kids table if you will the kids meaning like the 20 something year old table and you said i want you all to remember that the holocaust really happened you know it's not just something that you read about in history books and the way that you keep that going is through stories i mean of course i never thought the holocaust didn't exist i've never forgotten it but it really it really hit me unlike anything when when that woman was telling that also another story you know i've been sort of fascinated with this one that i never knew about is the haggadah story about the four sons Mm. I never heard this. For those who don't know, the Haggadah, this is like a good quiz for me. The Haggadah is the, the text for Passover slash Seder. Mm-hmm. And in it, there's this story of four sons. The, oh God, here we go. That'll be interesting. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. I love it. I'm like, I'm so fascinated by this story. Can't name the four sons. The simple, the wicked. There's not the right, the wise. I got it. Wise, simple, wicked. Really? Yes. I, that's okay. not a response here I would expect from I you. I know, and I'll tell you why. Because okay. it's 2100. 2100. Yeah. Really, you didn't major in math either. Well, I could not have majored in math. I, I admit that. You know, you're turning 75 soon. Sorry to... Let's not talk about it. Really? really? Yes. I, that's not a response I would I know, expect from you. I know, you. and I'll tell you why. Because in the public's view, I don't have an age. So I don't talk about it much because I don't. I, it, it's not relevant to any part of my life. I mean, it's relevant in my brain. I know how old I am. But I, I feel the same as I did when I was your age, and I act the same as I did in terms of energy in your age. But uh, I don't like to emphasize it because I prefer that people just think of me as Dennis. Does that make think, any sense? Well, no, I tell you that all the time. I think, I mean, you appear to me, your soul is sort of ageless. And I think that of other, you know, you, truly unique people, honestly. Um, on it, you know the other person who I thought of, weirdly, Donald Trump. 
That's correct. He seems no, ageless. No, nobody talks about his age. Yeah, he, he right. really does. You seem ageless. I'm trying to think of others. I mean, there are people that, that, that we know who, yes. I, who I could mention. Right. But it's very rare. Correct. I hope that I can impart that to people, too. For lack of a better term, you seem timeless. You, uh, I, you yes. really do seem ageless. That's why you named your thing Well, timeless. right. Yes, because I want... In honor of us. <laughs> well, in honor, in honor of, of the timeless. values I hope to espouse. Do you think yes. you'll do anything for your 75th? Like a big party? Oh, no, I don't want to do a thing. Really? Yeah. Oh. I, I, look, birthdays are a, are a kick when you're 30. Although when I, I turned 30, somebody baked me a tombstone. Because it, you, you're 30, psh, you're, you're over the hill already. No, 30, by the way, 30 is Don't dramatic. tell me that. I'm scared now well, <laughs> to turn okay. 30. Well, I have a theory on birthdays that the odd numbers with zeros are the toughest. Uh, let's see. Yeah. 30, 50, 70, 90. Well, once you got past 80, I don't, I don't know if it counts. But 30, 50, 70 are all, whoa, where am I in life? Much more, I think, than 20, 40, and 60. I thought of 60 as a coextension of 50. It had a question, and they will answer it, and they won't ask something back. That happens so often. And not just with me, with my friends. We we talk about it. There's no there's no um, exchange in conversation. You know another thing that pisses me off, and this is going to really, people are going to disagree with me on this, but whatever. The way people type. I use shorthand sometimes when I type. I don't, you know, not every word is meticulously written. But when I see a guy that uses too much slang on a dating app. I couldn't agree with you I more. I think it's delinquent. Well, the fact is he doesn't want to impress you. Yes, that's exactly that's what it is. That's a bad sign. That's exactly what it is. I yep. review every text message, every email for typos. Every single one. Yeah, you were you were uh, a meticulous texter. Right. Well, there's a reason. I want people who get something from me to think it reflects me. It does reflect you. Yeah. And I've received several emails from Dennis Prager over the years, and yes, they are correctly spelled and punctuated. Yes. If you don't check your your spelling, I mean, everybody's going to have an error now and then. Fine. But if you don't check your spelling, grammar, etc., when you send a text, uh, people say that's just a text. As long as people understand you, but. He, you make an impression. You are sending you. You're not just sending a text. That's a great point. When you're sending a text, you are sending you. You're not just sending a text. When you're sending an email, you're sending you. You're not just sending an email. All right. That's a great point by Dennis. You know what I just realized is the distinction. I don't mind some shorthand if you know someone well. Like when That's I text, right. when well, I text course. my best friends, I'm like, right. Thank you with a you. Yes. Thank right. you. Yes. Or you know, LOL. Or like, you know. Well, LOL is everybody. LOL, yeah. LOL okay. is a dumb example, but I use shorthand when I text my friends because. We're best friends, right? That's exactly. But when right. you're, but it's so true. Like, and not just with dating. You know, I was texting some, a girl recently who, you know, some someone actually who I know, Prager, you thought I should meet and possibly be friends with, and I wouldn't just, I wouldn't write shorthand to her because even though I'm not going to date her, you know, like a hinge, right. you know, it's just, I think it's just respect, and I think it's, I, I want to show you respect. I want to present myself as a dignified. Do you know what person. strikes me? This is really, if you want to write this down uh, for a future discussion. Good thing it's recorded. A major, major part of my singles life which ended at 32 when I married I was preoccupied with achievement to impress a woman I had in my mind the belief that I had to earn a, a terrific woman where where I God know, bless it, you. No, you're, where you're shaking your head like I'm speaking uh, Japanese yeah you have no I have never heard a man say that no. besides you I have never in my life heard someone say that you have no idea how little men my age think that. I do. That's why I mentioned it. I do they, they, don't even th they don't even think that. They, they, if they heard me say this, they would just think how weird. God. I mean, that's pretty good analysis, all right? If you want to land a quality woman, you have to transform yourself into someone of great quality. I'm depressed. <laughs> but I, I, I was not, oh, no, I, I was not alone. Gonna... I was not alone. I, I might have been a little more than others, but I was not alone. I remember one one woman. No man thinks that, yes, damn it. I remember one woman. I, I seduced her by playing Mozart on the piano. And my, I, I've always loved classical music, but the major reason I wanted to play the piano was to win women over. 
I wish, you know what you and I should do? We should write down a list of things that men should do to woo a woman. If a guy started playing Mozart for me on the piano, we would be in Las Vegas at the altar. We would. That's right. Like, I, would, I would marry him immediately. Right. That's right. That's a very good if point. A guy's, you you know, know who would, Zach? I, was, I didn't want to say it. I was just thinking of Zach. Zach is one of our Shabbat dinner friends who's married and has two kids. I want a duplicate of Zach. Uh, you, you would do well. If like play the piano, oh, oh my gosh! Can you imagine if a guy gave me that like leather bound inaugural address thing? Right, right. Why, why don't men? It's 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 so easy, honestly. Uh, yes, it's it's so easy. Be polite, do something kind of classy and a little and like old show, school. Show you're classy. Show that you're classy and show respect. How did the guy? We'll... So I'm afraid that my approach is kind of the opposite of Prager's. Like many 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 women I've been with were disappointed how little I tried and. Their friends and other people would notice, and they'd say things about me like, "He's not trying very hard, is he?" I'm—I was always a very lazy womanizer. We'll be in Las asked, Vegas. The guy you asked, uh, have you, uh, what's what's the latest book you've read? Yeah. How did he dress for the date? Oh, I didn't see him on a date. He was—he was just. I was messaging him on oh, the app. Oh, you never met? Oh, are you kidding? After he said that, I was. Oh, bye. Oh, oh. Yeah. Imagine how she'd react if someone gave her a copy of the Talmud. Oh, oh. I am curious. I th- is, am I right that typically, and I, I'm totally okay if I'm wrong, but typically a woman will dress up more than a man for a first date? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Why is that? Because I think for women, there's more gradations of dress. For men, it's either casual or you're wearing a suit. For women, you can have casual, you can have super dressy, you can have dressy casual. Well, if a guy can... came on a first date to you, and where is it usually? At a restaurant or at a yes. Starbucks? restaurant. So if he showed up, in a, a sport jacket, a nice jacket, and, and nice shirt. Would that would that impress you? Of course. I mean, honestly, well, it wouldn't impress me. I think it'd be the bare minimum. What if he I'd, did? What if he did shirt and tie? That honestly, I'd find that to be a little weird. Oh, that's fascinating. I know I'm breaking my own rule, but I would find that to be a bit odd. That's so interesting. Am I? Do, what's what's your no, no, response just, to I'm, my response? Well, look, that's why I didn't include tie in my original question. Did you show up with a tie to dates? I I, uh, I don't think so. Now that you mention it. Yeah, it's I not... looked. I looked w- w- good, but it, it probably it was a jacket and shirt. That it's would true. be a little. Tie, too, it would be a little weird. The tie would. Now, is there any outfit a woman could wear on a date that would turn you off? Baggy. Sean <laughs> <laughs> is completely relating. Sean, I made his day. Maybe his week. Baggy. Okay, if you need an explanation, I am mum. Ask Sean. What I mean? It's amazing. You, you don't fully understand what I'm saying. I do, I do. I get it. You want to see skin, or you no, want no, some, oh, you know, form. Form. That, that's a better yeah. way to put. But, yeah. Really, you're going to discriminate on the basis of baggy? Yeah, <laughs> you're damn right. I, will, I if I were dating, <laughs> so funny. I would want the woman to know she's a woman. That I, I mean, that's right, well, true. One but of baggy's the ways different. Is, no, baggy's not different. Why would why would a woman wear a baggy outfit to a date? Because maybe she's not feeling super confident about her appearance. Okay, so so okay. Maybe she had a big burrito before the date and wants to cover the no, stomach. All right. Well, then she shouldn't eat a big burrito before the date. Ooh, you're gonna you're gonna get oh, I, yeah, for like, that. Yeah, like I care, but the. the uh, <laughs> No, and he says it takes more than one burrito. You're going to no, no, get no. memed. It is really sad. I mean, I'm not even saying this for me because I'm not dating. I'm, I'm, you know how happily married I am. But to say that a guy on a first date would not want the woman to wear baggy clothing. I mean, I got it. I got it. No, see, I want the woman to want to impress me. No, knowing knowing that looks matter to me. What if she was wearing sort of a flowy dress, but had well, nice, she, okay, it was a wore, beautiful dress and, and nice almost, makeup? Almost any dress. Okay, we have a viral video to present, ladies and gentlemen. In New York that I never leave without a new anecdote that is both cosmic and karmic. The last time I went, I sat by myself, worked on my laptop, and eavesdropped on what I assumed was a first date from start to finish. 
He was there first. She came in late. They sat behind me. I wrote down some of my favorite lines from the conversation. They began with what they did. She said, I'm a dancer. And I knew what I was thinking. And it turns out it was similar to what this guy was thinking because he was like, so like ballet or, and I could hear the dot, dot, dot in his thoughts. And then she said, like lap dancing, duh. From there, the conversation moved on to exes and she seems to be really hung up on hers and even revealed that she lives with her ex. And this guy didn't see that as a red flag. He was like, oh, whatever works. From there, they move on to the astrology portion of a first date. She's a Virgo sun, Gemini moon, Aries rising. And he admitted that he doesn't really know astrology, but his ex-girlfriend told him that he's an Aquarius. There was a little bit of silence. I could hear the dot, dot, dot. And then she said, oh, you're an Aquarius? Like my ex-boyfriend. Maybe an hour into this dinner, I'm laughing to myself about Miss Virgo and Mr. Aquarius. And then I look up and I see a guy across the room sitting and facing me. Don't worry, he's not in this video. I wasn't wearing glasses, but I'm about 83% sure it's a guy I went on a date to this cafe with and have since been avoiding. Remember how I said this place feels cosmic and karmic? Yeah. He was even sitting at the same table we sat at. Suddenly, I became hyper aware of the really intense cello soundtrack that was playing overhead. It went a little something like this. Imagine me, sitting in this cafe I love, home of the first cappuccino by the way, sinking in my chair and trying to hide behind my laptop while the two people behind me canoodle and a guy I've decided I'm ignoring for the rest of my life is sitting across the room while this song or something like it plays. Then, it turns out the people behind me weren't on a first date. Actually, she was trying to get him to produce a comedy show she wants to headline. I think he kind of thought it was a date though. With this clarity of their situation, I quickly paid the bill and left Cafe Reggio without looking back and verifying if it was that guy at that table, because at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter, but it does make for a good anecdote. Okay, quality, quality. What, what does it mean? So- And what does it do? Well, well I don't know what it does. I don't know what it means. Pride stickers. To be perfectly honest, and I have this in my latest, uh, actually, commentary, which is coming out any day now, the um, Deuteronomy. third volume of my five-volume Bible so commentary. Excited. Thank you. You'll love it. You will love it, Deuteronomy. And I, I deal with the issue, I don't know how it arose, about ethnic pride. And so I, I mentioned, this is, you'll realize why I think it's such a big issue. We've never discussed this. So Jews, for example, are very proud of the utterly disproportionate number of Nobel Prize winners who were Jews. And most anyone would think, oh, it makes sense. So my... So Dennis Prager's analysis of ethnic pride is that it is irrational. Yeah, well, love of country is irrational. All right, love of your people is frequently irrational. So when it comes to ethnic pride, love, which is simply meaning you love your extended family, right, the largest extended family that can still be a coherent unit, Right, what you're saying is that you love your people. And yeah, nationalism is not rational. Loving your people is not rational, but it's probably adaptive. Probably a pretty good strategy most of the time to go through life, seeing the positive about your people, and by contrast, having somewhat negative, skeptical, suspicious views of outgroups. So this kind of irrational pride that Dennis is decrying here helps people lead happier, more effective lives as long as they keep it in moderation. And yes, yeah, not rational. The response is, then you have to be ashamed of the disproportionate number of Jews who gave Stalin the nuclear bomb. Mm. 
There's only ethnic pride, but there's no ethnic shame. shame. Wow. It's phony. So blacks, so there's black pride. Okay, right. there, there, there are a lot of blacks to be proud of. There's no question. But the disproportionate number of blacks involved in, in violent crime, is there black shame? Such an interesting point. You're so right about that. That's why I never understood it. I never understood black is beautiful right. or, 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 uh, or Jewish pride or, 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 or uh, any of these things. I love women. So that's what raised this issue. Yes, she got the, so the, the upset stick. with you. So I said, if you're, if you're not a gay woman, what does it mean you love women? Mm-hmm. I don't understand it. Well, she was saying. What, and by the way, would a guy put up, I love men? Yeah, that was he'd a be, good He'd point. be regarded as a weirdo. That was a good not, not for sexual reasons. Right. Well, what she was saying, which I thought was such a cheap shot, she was like, so if women are expressing confidence in, in themselves or but this is non-confidence. Support, right. That's the joke. It shows you you're not yes. confident. Well, precisely. And when I bring this up to you, when I talk about it on air, as I have done a few times, and when I would see it in person at Harvard, it made me really sad. I mean, first of all, it creeped me out. And I thought it was just odd. But it, the secondary and overwhelming emotion was that it made me sad because I, I just see at our age, it's a vulnerable time in our lives. We're in that kind of, in college, we're in that middle kind of interim period between adolescence and adulthood. We're trying to figure out exactly who we are and we're making mistakes and we're just, we're, we're trying in so many ways to get ourselves right. And to me, that just reflects a lack of confidence and a lack of competence at building a strong, robust individual identity. I think that those people who, who put those computer stickers on or they wear, you know, I was saying they have the canvas bag with, with another pin on it saying vote or fight racism. It's, it's really devastating because I think they're so desperately trying to find who they are and what their identity is. And the left has brainwashed them into thinking that this is the proper way to express their identity. The people who I know in my life who are the most insecure are the ones who are the most woke and political because it's the thing that they desperately clutch onto in order to feel like they have a sense of belonging or just, again, a sense of self. But it's so misguided. That's Your political ideology is not at all who you are. It's a fraction of who you are. No, I'm just smiling because everything you're saying is so true. You're an insecure woman if you have any statement about how great you are as a woman. Mm-hmm. It means you're insecure. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, what was the song, uh, I Am a Woman, Hear Me Roar? Remember that? Oh, yes. Sean, what what was that song? No, it wasn't Katy Perry. No, no, no. They're about to play an excerpt, but that's going to get me into trouble with the copyright. So don't do that. Don't do that, guys. Right. Let me find. Oh, here are Dennis and Julie on the power of Torah. But I was right. But it will age well. It did age well. So how how did I know? Well, this is the reason it's sensitive is because to tell you what I really believe, it's going to sound okay. Let me rewind here. You're asking a very uh, sensitive question. I'll explain why in a moment. Just let me tell you, in the 1980s, I published a newsletter. This is more or less pre-internet. Mm-hmm. I used internet. to subscribe for like so thirty dollars a year. To magazines, and I published a quarterly called Ultimate Issues. That's what got the name of my show, my hour. Oh from. yeah. And I wrote an essay in the 1980s, uh, the war against differences including male, female, in the 1980s. Wow. And I said, when you abolish these differences, you end up with totalitarianism. And I remember writing it and thinking most of the readers won't see the connection. But I was right. But it will age well. It did age well. So how did, how did I know? Well, this is The reason it's sensitive is because to tell you what I really believe, it's going to sound uh, dangerously pompous. But I know. It's, it's not pompous. I know what you're going to say, it's and I agree pompous. with you. It's a gift. It is a gift. It, it, I don't take any credit. Look, you're not good at basketball. You didn't get that gift, but you got this gift. Okay, so looking at decoding the gurus, they note gurus like to claim prescience among their many talents. Their heightened insight gives them a superior ability to predict the future, and they will enjoy dwelling on those instances in which they made a purportedly correct prediction, obviously not mentioning or acknowledging the times when they got it wrong. 
So a heightened sense of how the world is not right and ought to be fixed and that they are the persons to do it is a common feature of gurus. Unfortunately, the broader public fails to recognize their genius and heed their advice. Thus, the world lurches from calamity to calamity. So gurus typically position themselves as a Cassandra. They see the future. They warn of possible calamities. Calamities that could be avoided if only they were heeded. Now, the followers of the guru also gain a positive role for themselves in supporting, defending, and promoting the guru. And through doing this, they can help make the world a better place. Gift. It's right. not. You're just stating a fact. It's just a fact. Look, uh, even you have raised the issue of you know my opposition to same-sex marriage, to redefining marriage, as I put it. And I, and what I said over and over, the argument for same-sex marriage is gender doesn't matter. And I said, that argument is going to lead us to hell. It's a legitimate argument. Now you see where it's led us. So you're saying it's primary, it's a gift. That's how you do. That's correct. Do you think it was your also your extensive knowledge of history or you're just doing this as a career and researching it all the time? Like, do you think there was something that you Yes, aside from gift, you yes, learned... I, I'll tell you what I think. There was the Torah. Hmm. Those five books. The reason I'm devoting so much time to my Bible commentary, which is a Torah commentary, is I know how they've influenced me. At, you'll, I don't think I've ever said this publicly. That's one of the beauties of our podcast. It's, it forces me to say things yes. I don't normally say. At a certain point, I don't remember when, but it was early on, I said to myself, wow, you, your instincts are identical to the Torah's. And it blew my mind. My natural mode of thinking was the Torah's mode of thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel such a moral obligation to get it in print. Because if you take those five books seriously, you will think morally clearly. You will think clearly about everything. And you'll be so much happier. Yeah, well, you could testify. Oh, my that. God. I mean, your life will, society will run better. Your life will run better. Personally, you will feel enriched and fulfilled and happier. It's, I really think, and I know it sounds sort of extreme or perhaps um, like I'm hyperbolizing to say, I think it's the answer to everything. Oh, I know it's the answer it to is. everything. That's why it's frustrating that it isn't out there more. I know. As much as it's out there, the mo my biggest frustration is it's not out there more. This is the answer to evil. Or even unhappiness. Mm -hmm. You know, I said this. I, I know I said the first part on our podcast, but I said the second part in the PragerU video I just filmed, and I think it's worth mentioning here. You know that I think it's incredibly creepy that people my age fight against things that most of them have never seen before. Racism, climate change. Oppression. Oppression, you know, uh, what's, what are their words? Homophobia, transphobia, etc. But on the flip side of that, they... I, I, <laughs> that was kind of a stunning series of statements there from Dennis and Julie that uh, Dennis realized that his his instincts were like entirely aligned with Torah. That the Torah and Dennis are exactly on the same page. That that must be an amazing feeling. I don't think I've ever felt this. Okay, have you guys watched Chimp Empire? Right? So putatively the topic of today's show is power. Fox News got rid of Tucker Carlson because they feared that he had a more powerful grip on their audience than he did. So Episode two of Chimp Empire, how power works with our closest natural relatives, the chimpanzees. This is in Nangogo in uh, Kenya. Richmond was once the Western Alpha until his younger brother replaced him at the top. But he still has power and influence. And why does he still have power and influence? Blood relations. Family. The small number of adult males in the West 
puts them at risk if their rivalry with the central group escalates. So the smaller group in this, and I'm going to give away some of the plot, the smaller group ends up intimidating and beating back the larger group because the smaller group of chimpanzees is more cohesive. They form a more coherent community and therefore they punch way above their weights. There are younger males on the way up. But the journey can be difficult. Burgle is an orphan, so he's had to grow up quickly. Not so easy. Find ways to get by. Be an orphan. But as an adolescent male, he's changing and wants. Okay, now there's Garrison. Tough guy, tough, tough chimp. So once they get past the Someone age of has one, though. they get a name. So many die in their first year. So they're, they're distinctive characters in Chimp Empire, in a, in a clash of civilizations, a battle royale, alphas fighting for top spot. As they get older, male chimps become less aggressive and more caring. I noticed too with my father, when he, he got into his 60s, he became less aggressive, uh, much more nurturing. And sometimes they'll step in to take care of an orphan. The Western group needs Burgle. But if he's going to find his place, he'll need to learn to control his aggression. Okay, let's move on to episode three. So we got chimps on the warpath here. The West versus the Central group of chimpanzees in Ngogo. Used to just be one community of chimps, but we had a breakaway of the Western chimps, and now they are invading the turf of the main group, the Central chimps. Bartoli's son, Herzog, is six years old now. And she's ready to get pregnant again. And there's love, there's romance, there's sex in this miniseries. There's nurturing, there's making babies, bringing She could do babies. a lot worse than Jackson's genes. Jackson's the alpha. But she needs one. to be cautious. Jackson is big, powerful, and unpredictable. She needs to keep herself and Herzog safe and ensure that Jackson is calm. It's not so easy having sex with a really alpha. Herzog finds chip. the whole thing confusing. And particularly when your son is hanging around where you're trying to get it out with the number one alpha. But as a young chimp, so he has to stay close to his mother. Just imagine you have to hang out with your mother when she's trying to hook another dude. Hook up. Whatever she's doing, 
Jackson's making his move here. Like he's trying to impress. Grabbing a tree branch and waving it back and forth. That's the signal. Let's get it on, baby. Waving the tree, tree branch back and forth. He's letting it know how much he wants her. Jackson is making his move. By waving a branch, he's asking Bartoli to follow him. The Bartoli's the and woman. Mate. So they only get pregnant about every four or five years, apparently. So Bartoli wants to hook up with Jackson, the number one alpha chip, but her baby boy insists on going along to this entire mating ritual, which gets a little awkward when the action really gets going. And Bartoli seems keen. Mm -hmm. so Bartoli's the woman. Jackson's the alpha male. That means the love that these two have for each other. Just the raw animal passion. And then the confusion for the, for the boy. Oh no, now he's mounting her. Jackson is mounting... Herzog Bartoli. makes an attempt to break it up. So now the, the little boy tries to break up the lovemaking. But it's too late. Oh. Jackson got what he wanted. And then he just walks off. Bartoli got what she wanted too. And She's so did Bartoli. Exhausted. It's not easy. But it's been a tiring day. So, Chimp Empire, episode three. So, four episodes on Netflix. Just stunning. And there are chimps in the group that won't stop there. So, the chimps are always trying to extend the territory and protect the territory from others who are trying to invade. The strong want to get stronger. Rollins and Damon will always want more territory. Yep, the Western males are getting stronger. They are constantly displayed. The Westerners are getting ready to make their move. Oh, 
Kind of Chimp Empire on Netflix. Here is how this translates among people. In the liberal view. So what I'm saying to you is that during the unipolar moment, realism was taken out of the equation yeah. for the United States. And we pursued a liberal policy. And remember, people like me, who is always thinking in terms of realism, right? Someone like me, I argued that this was crazy to help right. China grow more powerful because as China grew more powerful, it would cause the United States all sorts of problems. It would right. try to dominate Asia the way the United States dominates the Western hemisphere. Right. So anyway, what you have during the unipolar moment is the United States acting in a very liberal fashion. Then starting in about 2017, 2018, the United States understands that they have a problem yeah. and they adopt a containment policy, mm. if not a rollback policy mm. against China. The United States, this happens under Trump, becomes very realist. Then Trump is defeated. Joe Biden comes to power. And Joe Biden, who had been a big supporter of engagement, now pursues realpolitik behavior towards China. But he disguises that realpolitik behavior with liberal rhetoric. So if you listen to Biden and his right. lieutenants talk, they talk the liberal game. Right. But underneath that liberal velvet glove is the mailed fist, as the Chinese well understand. But that was not the case during the unipolar moment. And there, the United States was pursuing, in my opinion, a thoroughly liberal policy. What, what do you think might have explained that change of posture? It's very simple. China just grew so powerful that uh, the United States began to fear it, uh, as I predicted it would. Yeah. Uh, I mean, many people would say that the Chinese acted in very aggressive ways, that it's the Chinese fault for sort of violating Deng Xiaoping's uh, basic axiom that you should lie low and, yeah. uh, you know, don't provoke. Uh, I don't think that the Chinese were especially provocative. Yeah. I think what happened is that the Americans began to understand that China was growing bigger and bigger and they were spending more money on defense. Right. And uh, as soon as that begins to happen, the Americans think that the Chinese are a real threat and that that threat has to be contained. And of course, what that does is as the United States becomes more aggressive towards China, China becomes more aggressive towards the United States, which becomes more aggressive toward China and on and on. Right. And that's what you see happening now. You have this ratcheting. All right, a little analysis there from John Mearsheimer. Let's get some comedy about our president. The bottom line is Joe's been a running joke in Washington for decades. The media's always known. Even Barack knew it when Joe was his VP. The vice president isn't here tonight, not for security reasons. He just thought this event was being held at the Dulles Airport Applebee's. <laughs> yes, right now, Joe is elbow deep in jalapeno poppers and talking to a construction cone he thinks is John Boehner. <laughs> also true. Um, it's crazy to think that Joe Biden is only one heartbeat away from no one taking him seriously as president. <laughs> Sorry for that one. Everybody in Washington. Okay, let's get a little more John Mearsheimer before we transition into Shabbat. Up ...of the security competition. Uh, you're sort of going up the escalation ladder. And in my opinion, that was inevitable right. once China's economic growth began to appear to be very impressive to the United yeah. States. You know, by way of your analysis, uh, during a much more unipolar global order, multilateralism was honky-dory, right? It was moving in a, in a robust manner. As soon as it shifted to a much more multipolar world, we've seen how multilateralism has sort of like declined. What does that say about the future of multilateral institutions in the near foreseeable future, at least when the global order is likely to continue being multipolar? Well, if you talk about an order, yeah. you're talking about the institutions yeah. uh, that are so important for economic and political intercourse among states. Um, and during the unipolar moment, the United States was in charge of the order. 
And that's a way of saying the United States wrote the rules and enforced the rules. And everybody else obeyed the rules. And judges the rules too. Pardon? <laughs> he's the police, he's the judge, he's the executive branch and everything. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the United States yeah. was. Yeah. So you had a liberal international order. <clears throat> it was run basically by the United States. And by the way, that was originally the Western order from the Cold War. During the Cold War, you had two orders. You had a Soviet-led order and an American-led order. And the United States won the Cold War. The Soviet Union disappeared. And what the United States did is it took that Western order and it transformed it into a liberal international order, which it could do because it was the unipole. But once you move into a multipolar world where you have two other great powers, China and Russia, and China is a peer competitor of the United States. Russia is not. Russia is the weakest of those three great powers. Right. Nevertheless, the Chinese, as they grow more and more powerful, are going to be unhappy with an order in which the rules were written by the United States. And the Chinese are going to want to write their own rules. Right. You're probably wondering what's the great thinker, Tim Pool. What is he saying about these things? The After Hours show is if, wild. If you suck a trans woman's penis, is that gay? It's not. No. You're, you're sucking a woman's penis. <laughs> Stop. No. Stop. Yeah, gay. I know. Stop. I'm, I'm blowing minds. <laughs> no. Oh, the After Hours show is if, wild. If you suck a trans woman's penis, is that gay? Not gay. All right. Let's get... Let's just get some sanity before we head off into Shabbat. How do we get in touch with emotional sobriety? First step when we're looking at that we're powerless and that our lives have become unmanageable, we're really talking about that we're powerless over this emotional dependency that has developed in our life. And it has really made our life unmanageable because of this idea that I've got to control the people and the situations and circumstances surrounding me to be okay. And as you, if you've sat down and looked at this to any degree, you realize the, the incredible damage that that's done in our life. The first piece of damage is that it's, it, we've built our life on a lie. I call it the big lie that we're only okay if, right? I'm okay if situations or circumstances go the way that I think they should go, which really diminishes our capacity. So Alan Berger is a psychologist. He's Jewish and a former Marine, and uh, he's been in recovery since about 1970 for coping with what it is. And that's an incredible problem because without having faith in ourselves to cope, then we're gonna be looking for all of these other, you know, what we call, we look to our environment to support us rather than to find a way to support ourselves. So we've got all these rules on how people are supposed to behave and what's supposed to happen for people to support me so that I'm okay in the world. And if they don't do that, then I try to manage them rather than manage me. <laughs> I've become pretty good at managing other people rather than managing myself. I've got a PhD in that, in that department. So in step one, just as a quick review, is what we're doing is we're getting aligned with reality. And the reality is, is I cannot control you or life. So when I start to get aligned with reality, it actually creates humility. It right-sizes me. I realize that there's gaps in my knowledge. I realize I have no business putting my expectations on you or on life to be a certain way. Well, as we talked about this, is that as I accept that, I realize I'm in quite a dilemma. This is the way I've been living my whole life. I mean, this is all I know what to do. 
And when I start facing the fatal nature of my condition, my emotional dependency, I don't know yet what to do differently. I don't know how to surrender these crippling expectations, as Bill says. So at the, the working of step one leads to this existential crisis. And that's what I talked about last week. And the crisis is I'm no longer wanting to do what I've been doing. I know that doesn't work. It's created a lot of problems in my life. It's, it's caused a lot of wreckage and it's going to continue to do so. But I don't have any other possibility. I only know what I know and I don't know what I don't know. So I'm left in that incredible dilemma of not being able to turn back to what I've been doing, although I will <laughs> inevitably, but we say when you get stressed, you regress. I mean, you're going to go back and try that stuff is when you're stressed out and it takes a lot of effort to turn this thing around, but I don't know what to do different. So I'm in this dilemma. I've got a serious problem that is, that is, you know, sabotaging the possibilities in my life. And I don't know how to turn this around. That's the existential crisis. Bill says that at the end of step one, we are reduced to a state of absolute helplessness, absolute helplessness. So where he calls it, we're end up, we're over a barrel. <laughs> Look, I'm in this state of helplessness, but I don't know what to do. Now, remember what I said is that the amazing things about the steps from my perspective is the energy that's, that develops when you work one step. Can you see the energy that's developed? You're having this existential crisis. This existential crisis, there's a sequential imperative. It needs to be resolved. Something has to happen. You cannot live in a state of crises. So, and that's what's the beauty of step two. So step two comes along, you know, we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves came to believe that a power, power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So from a psychological point of view, step two is a resolution of the existential crisis that was created in step one. It says, and this is, this is the resolution of that crisis. It says there is hope. Now, let me read you because I've become a big fan of the American Psychological Association's dictionary. So let me read you the definition of hope because i think it's it's very interesting and it and it's got many dimensions of it that really apply here so hope is the expectation or the idea that one will have a positive experience or that a potentially threatening or negative situation will not materialize or will ultimately result in a favorable state of affairs hope has been characterized in the psychological literature in various ways including as a character strength and emotion a component of motivation that is critical to goal attainment a mechanism that facilitates coping with loss illness, and other significant stresses or psychological issues, or an integrated combination of these features. See also optimism. <laughs> We're going to stay with hope right now. Optimism, too big of a piece to bite off at this point in time, but we can definitely start to see the relevance of hope. So let me talk to you about an interesting thing. Um, there was a, a, a psychologist at Harvard University who did a, a very, very interesting study. He wrote a book. His name was Jerome Frank, Dr. Jerome Frank. And he wrote a book called Persuasion and Healing. Right? Now, it's, it's fascinating because what he did is he wanted to understand what are the therapeutic forces that are operating in psychotherapy. He wanted to identify those. So what he decided to do was compare three different healing activities to see if he could find some common, commonality amongst these different groups. He looked at Western medical doctors, he looked at shamans, and he looked at psychotherapists, all involved in healing. And he said to himself, as he went into these groups and studied what they did, he said that the commonality amongst every one of these healing practitioners was that they instilled hope in the person that came to see them and that the installation of hope mobilized certain forces within that person that heretofore were they were unable to mobilize they could not activate them because of their mindset but now you go into to see a shaman and if you're having these terrible nightmares and the shaman's telling you well it's your grandma and she's trying to work through some issues from your path you go oh my god i understand what's going on now great grandma let's get this thing let's deal with this and the shaman's going to help grandma deal with whatever the feelings were and now you feel like god there's an explanation on why i'm suffering the way i am 
and there's a path that we're going to take to resolve the problem. So that's how all of these practitioners instilled hope. They gave you an understanding, an explanation of what you were suffering from, and they pointed out a protocol that they would follow to help you resolve the problem. You've got bronchitis, you know, your bronchi are inflamed. We're going to give you this antibiotic is going to take care of, kill the bacteria and reduce the inflammation in your lungs. So your cough is going to be resolved. Gives you what? Hope, right? You go to a psychotherapist. If it's psychoanalytic, there's definitely something going on in your unconscious. We're going to put you in therapy and figure out what it is. That's what's causing these symptoms that you're having of anxiety. And so we're going to, you're going to lay on the couch and you're going to free associate for the next five years of your life. And we'll figure out what's underneath that. That's the kind of stuff that's happening. Well, what do we do? We walk in the program and Bill says, hey, you are suffering from an illness. If let's say you're looking at your alcoholism, you know, you've got a mental obsession coupled with a physical allergy, an explanation of why you've been behaving the way you are. You're not a bad person. You're just sick. You need to get well. Here are the steps that we suggest as a program of recovery. You see how it follows that same path. Emotional sobriety, same thing. Hey, we've got this emotional dependency. That's what's causing so much problem in our relationships. If we learn to deal with this and learn how to support ourselves, now we can have a different way of life. So this becomes such a critical part in terms of our experience, this installation of hope that there's another way. Now, where we block the possibility is that we think that somehow, if I haven't been able to figure this out up to now, then you can't figure it out. I can't tell you how many people that come in to see me in, in therapy and they're saying, well, I've tried everything. I've tried everything to deal with this problem, you know? And I'm thinking, my God, you've tried everything. You're incredible. You're the first person I've met in the world that's actually done that because it's an impossibility to try everything. You can only try what? What you know to try. You can only apply what is available in your consciousness. And your consciousness, if we go back to the humility we were talking about, is obviously limited. But this is what makes the humility such an important part of turning around this emotional dependency issue that we have because we need to accept that the consciousness that I have that's developed this problem is not going to help me figure this thing out. It's just not. I've got to bring in new information. I've got to bring in new experiences in my life. And that's what step two is saying, that you need to come to believe that there's a new possibility. Now, if you believe in God, that's fine. You know, you don't have to. It's, it's, this is what's powerful about this program. And Bill says that. You don't have to have any belief whatsoever in terms of this program because the process works. That's what we're looking at here. That's why we're taking this dive into the steps is to look at the process that's involved. Process is, it's all of a sudden, we start to see we've got a serious problem. It's really destroying our life. We don't know what to do about it. We're in this existential crisis. And now we come to believe that we can turn things around, that things can be different in our life. I say that recovery is the discovery of new possibilities in our life. That's what recovery is about. It's the discovery of new possibilities. And that's what step two is inviting us, is have some faith that there can be some new possibilities in your life. Now, you don't know about them because we just don't. We, we don't have, we haven't expanded our consciousness yet. But we can start to see that there's new possibilities. Now, how do we come to that? How do we come to believe? Well, this is where meetings become, I think, of incredible value. And especially a meeting like this where we're talking about emotional sobriety. We start hearing other people share that are struggling with very similar issues that we have. And we start to hear some of their success stories. God, I start to figure this out a different way. I'm starting to do this different. I mean, somebody was commenting on my new book which is the 12 essential insights for emotional sobriety. And in each of the insights, I give at least one example, one case example of someone struggling with the issues around that issue and discovering some new possibilities. And that's the exciting thing to me about recovery is that we are discovering these new possibilities together. Um, well, I've said a lot about it. So I, I just want to leave this thought. So we get this idea that there is hope. There is a possibility for something different. Now, remember what I said, each step is generating an energy. So we resolve the existential crisis. 
Now the energy is building up around hope, but hope can't just be an idea. We can't just stay with step two. And you're going to see that when we start to talk about step three. Um, and we'll decide at the end of this evening if we want to do one more week on step two. But right now, I will turn this over to Tom and let him have a shot at this thing. Tom, please. Hey, hey. beautiful. Thank you. Um, it's um, Speaking of powerless, uh, I, I've told this group before that how, how I... Okay, let's uh, get ready for Shabbos. Children's Voice Chorus from Miami. Take care. Good Shabbos. Bye-bye.